the swan is truly like <laughs> the single greatest enemy that they have in, <laughs> in this village. Yeah. Um, if it hadn't like decided to join their side at the end, they probably never would have like mm-hmm. saved the day. Yeah, it's truly the swan has a redemption arc throughout this movie, starting out fully antagonistic, and by the end he will have completed his metamorphosis into into protagonist them. It's it's a fascinating... I I think we don't talk about the Swan's arc as a character enough when we're discussing this movie. I think this is a really good time to unpack that. That's a good point. We should be the first Mm -hmm. people to give in, like, the the point of this video essay is to talk about the Swan. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, we need to talk about the Swan. That's the thumbnail. And just a big picture of the Swan's face and really close up. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I'm joined today by uh, YouTuber and cat owner, Dominic Noble. Dominic, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. That's the that's not the order I self-identify in. It's cat owner <laughs> and YouTuber afterwards. Of course. Of course. My mistake. Close enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Dom, I'm really excited to have you, a token Brit, on for this particular movie. But before we jump into what movie that is, I do have to ask you the question that I ask every guest at the top of the show, and that is, why did we watch Hot Fuzz? I mean, because it's an absolute work of art, I think is the short answer. It's yep. <laughs> uh, it, it's a weird thing to say, but it's one of those films that I do consider like every frame a painting, and every mm. every piece of dialogue to be absolutely on point. Mm. Oh, and that's the loudest notification I've ever got my computer before, <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, so yeah, this is, I thought, the peak of the Cornetto trilogy, and one of Edgar mm. Wright's finest movies. So it's it's... Probably, like, at least top three favorite films of all time for me. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's a good point to touch on. This is part of the Cornetto trilogy, which also includes uh, Shaun of the Dead and The World's End, all of which were directed by Edgar Wright and notably star uh, uh, Simon Simon Pegg and (laughs) Nick Frost, usually as the kind of sidekick friend role. So, you know, Shaun of the Dead is probably... Uh, the one of the three I've seen the most, Hot Fuzz, is certainly, I would say, probably the most user-friendly is the wrong word, but it's the most accessible of the three, if I was going to pick one to show to a group. It's, yeah, no, it's definitely the best one. Like, I appreciate Shaun the Dead as being a good movie. My, the only reason I'm not super fond of it is because I'm so not into zombies. They mm-hmm. freak me out way too much. And, mm-hmm. and for, I thought World's End, and this is a semi-controversial opinion, but I didn't think World's End was particularly good. And it's it was definitely the weakest of the three, I thought. But Hot Fuzz I, is just, like I said, it's, it's just so good from start to finish. Mm. It's really just a... a perfectly made movie uh but to talk about said perfectly made movie we open on the only sound we can police sirens wailing a bunch of different alarms going off as the uh different logos resolve and the glass doors of every very slick modern police precinct slide open as a backlit silhouette of police constable nicholas angel approaches the foreground he presents his badge and this is when we jump into his backstory in the first of a series of sequences that'll kind of recur throughout the movie of rapidly explaining something that's someone's character as events are happening. So we go through his whole backstory and see snippets of it in this very rapid cut style that Edgar Wright's kind of known for. He is a Londoner, Canterbury University graduate, studied psych and sociology, went into the police academy, was a star student, joined the Metropolitan Police Service, all the while continuing to improve his police work and training. He received nine special accommodations, et cetera, et cetera. All of this is telling us that he is the uh, very type A 
high achiever type of <laughs> dedicated to his job police. He's the, the super cop of Britain. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was stabbed in the hand by uh, Father Christmas, all that good stuff. You know, just standard yeah. career milestones. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's another thing you go through when you work for the Met. Yeah, I, I assume that that's just sort of like a rite of passage for everyone on the force. You know, when once you've been stabbed by Santa, then you officially have become, <laughs> grown into your job, so to speak. Yep. And we, we wrap up this storied career with Nick walking into the sergeant's office where we were greeted by Martin Freeman, who's in this movie. Uh, he asks how his hand is from the noted Santa stabbing incident and makes some small talk about how he's surprised Nick hasn't been put up for a desk job yet. Um, you know, Nick feeling that the street is his office in this situation. And they sort of change to talk a little bit about his 400% higher than average arrest record and how he's going to be promoted to sergeant. Uh, but as Martin Freeman says under his breath, not in his ideal location, as we learned from this delivery that he's going to be stationed in Sanford. Uh, Gloucest- you're going to have to help me out. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Very important. Yeah, the, the spelling is... Whether something's pronounced Shire or Shire, it depends entirely on which one, which which part of England you're in. So it trips mm. people up almost on purpose. Oh, good. I'm, I'm always excited when a language is purposefully trying to um, trip me up because I do pretty bad with pronunciations just as a baseline. So this is going to be a real fun ride. Well, it's, it's an amalgamation <laughs> of three, like four countries and everyone we've been invaded by over the last like 2,000 years. Hmm. So you can end up with bizarre bastardizations of welsh english latin scottish celtic everything oh good so it's like a it's like kind of like a where's waldo of languages i love it nick is not loving it though he's not thrilled with the country location he's being assigned to and requests a different assignment even suggesting that maybe there's a position open for him in london if he stays as a pc but ultimately he has no choice in the matter which will become more and more apparent as we go progressively higher up the chain of command um, as each progressively more cagey uh, higher up continues to just sort of push him towards this unofficial retirement to the countryside. Yeah. Peeking at Bill Nye, like that scene was yes. kind of like a who's who's of upcoming British actors. Uh, <laughs> they just lo- lo- like looped in anyone who was like big in movies right now to come and do a cameo for that one particular scene. Yeah, they're really like, yeah, you, you want to come give us like four or five lines, pretty much just say the exact same thing the guy before you said and get to tell Simon Pegg to go fuck off to the countryside. Come. Have, well, we could wrap this in like six hours. This is going to be a super quick shoot, guys. We, we promise. And over the course of this, we basically have the same repeated small talk with each new inspector, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was a little bit... Lo- I So I watch a lot of procedurals, but they're usually based on like the U.S. Um, police force. And so there's different rankings of the like levels of officers in the US versus the UK. And so mm-hmm. I got a little bit thrown off sometimes when I'm like, I don't know if inspector is higher than sergeant or sergeant is who, because I'm used to like chief versus beat cop, etc. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the order which they came into the room is basically their rank. It goes from uh, yes. yeah, sergeant, inspector, chief inspector, like all that goes up that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the thing I never really thought about. I'm like, I guess that makes sense that there'd be different names for the different ranks, but uh, you live and you learn. Most of the people who Sherlock Holmes hang out with, like uh, Lestrade and stuff, they were inspectors. Mm. So they were like middle-ranked people. Interesting. They weren't They weren't the highest up. They weren't the low, lowest in the totem pole. That makes sense. They'd be like being a detective uh, in the U.S., essentially. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like, I think there's a similar setup in Britain where the uh, detective is like a separate thing. You've got the uniformed officers mm. and then you have the uh, the inspectors who handle the investigation of, of crimes, which is, they'll come into play later because it's the Andes jobs. 
Um, and as we're sort of repeating this small talk, when we get to the final uh, figure of the higher ups, we get the real reason that Nick is getting shipped out to the countryside. And that is, of course, because his efforts are making the rest of the force look real bad. He's just too good at his job and they can't have him being that skilled and making everyone else look like they're not even doing anything. Realizing that all the higher-ups are against him, Nick goes to make one last plea to his teammates, but they're all eagerly waiting with a goodbye party for him before he can even get a word in edgewise. So unfortunately, Sergeant Nicholas Angel is definitely going to be sent out to the countryside. Camera flash, we're at a crime scene, bunch of techs in um, tech suits. Not coveralls. <laughs> uh, they... Uh Dust suits, I think. Like, dust suits? yeah, they're in like they're in like clean suits for yeah. It's the full the full white hooded. Yeah, uh, uh, they're doing the full ha- CSI. Ha- not thing. quite a hazmat, but like that level CSI. Yes, a yeah. uh, bunch of techs all in identical suits. Very difficult to tell who's who or milling about. When one cell phone rings, it's Jeannie. She picks it up. Uh, it's Nick. He's asking about the situation, both meaning the case in the room and with their particular relationship. Uh, and that he has news to tell her that he wanted to say in person. When he enters the crime scene, he goes to tell Jeannie that he's been transferred and he's moving away for a while, except it's not her. So he must immediately re-deliver this line verbatim to the actual hazmat suit wearing correct Jeannie. <laughs> I love that they make an entire running gag out of everyone looking alike in this room. Like, oh, I wouldn't yes. date I wouldn't date Joe. It's, do they look like someone I'd date? It's Dave and there's two identical men standing next to each other. Mm-hmm. The dialogue in this scene is not necessarily especially all that funny. It's played very straight, but the situation that they're in is so humorous because just all of these characters are identically dressed, as you mentioned, that it, it's it's something that I think Edgar Wright does really well in this movie a lot, of just using the situation to be funny rather than relying on the dialogue, which is not to say that the dialogue is not well-written and funny because there's some very funny lines coming up later on. Um, but this is, one of, I think, a, a good example of a scene of where that is working in a different it's, dynamic. Yeah, the dialogue is subtle in it because they, you know, every time mm-hmm. they, they point to someone, the, each each crime scene investigator turns around and just goes, Hello there. So it's like, it's, <laughs> the fact that they even talk alike is, is just mm-hmm. hilarious to me. <laughs> it's just so funny. It also had to be a great scene to be laid, like, uh, art department on because basically you just had to source a bunch of identical crime scene investigation suits and masks and things and just throw a bunch of extras in the background and say mill about and look the same pick a buddy act like them genie of course uh, already knows that nick is getting sent out to the countryside and seems not to care we kind of learned through their conversation that they were together until very recently and had even talked about getting married but nick was already married to his job and genie was frustrated that he only ever talked about the force oh sorry the service as he corrects her to he's, he's big uh, on always cap. Yes, always calling out people's incorrect lingo. Um, <laughs> he just can't switch off his policeman instinct. Uh, and as this conversation progresses, we learn that not only has she left him, but she's dating Dave now, who is not the <laughs> another one of the hazmat-suited yeah. background. One men. of the things I really liked about this movie is that they don't replace. He doesn't like have a new love interest later mm-hmm. on. That's he's just yeah. He's, he got out of a long relationship. He's not going to jump straight into something else when he gets to his next location so it's just never him having a potential romance is just never referenced again so they don't feel the need to like force another romance into the movie yeah they uh they instead rely on the strength of his uh friendship that he'll develop with of course nick Frost's character because serious bromance serious bromance and that's pretty standard for the cornetto trilogy like those two guys having that bromance is pretty much prevalent in all the movies um so I'm not, it's not too surprising if, you, if you're genre savvy for the... Genre savvy is, again, the, I'm using a lot of the wrong terms. The wrong term for a, being aware of a trilogy, but it's not as it's, surprising later on. 
it actually transcends the trilogy and, in fact, even filmography <laughs> in general. Because uh, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg starred in a TV show called Spaced, which is a British uh, huh. sitcom. Uh, also directed by Edgar Wright. And it was sort of like a proto-form Kineto trilogy. And mm. they played best friends in that as well. Um, and Nick Frost got the job because he was Simon Pegg's roommate. He, like, he wasn't a professional actor before that. So they were like, you can't just bring your roommate into being a scene. He was like, no, no, it'll be fine. And then he's got a whole ass acting career now. So the wow. the friendship between these two seems so genuine in these movies because it was just there. They just transplanted it from real life into the films. Incredible. That is not the first roommate that has gotten uh, hired to act by just showing up with their roommate. I've shot some student films in college, which are not nearly the same caliber as Hot Fuzz, but we had to cast them. And we did have someone bring their roommate who ended up getting cast in the movie uh, but the original actor who auditioned did not. Their roommate Ooh. actually went past them. It was a bit... That sounds like a, like a plot to like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or something. Like one <laughs> person gets really jealous after a while. It was very soap opera-y. Uh, luckily, the actor who auditioned was very nice. Ended up in a different film. But oh, good. after this tragic breakup that happened months ago, uh, there's a helicopter where Nick is packing his things. And we head into our next rapid-fire sequence of uh, just kind of speeding up travel as he hits trains en route to uh, his new post. He listens to a series of voicemails from one of the other constables at his new uh, assignment, finally arriving at the Swan Hotel, a very dreary old joint with a pair of uh, yeah, old I believe that's running the place. <laughs> the guy leaving the messages, I think, is Frank, who's the new chief mm -hmm. inspector. So he's in charge of the new, uh, the new police you know, precinct. Yes. So, uh, but yes, he gets informed on the way there. They've got a nice little cottage picked out for him. But then, oh, it's not ready yet. So presumably it's like fallen <laughs> down in the interval between the phone calls. So yes. they have to set him up in this really crappy hotel. Uh-huh. Very, uh, it, it definitely looks like the scene of a Hercule Poirot or um, Agatha Christie murder mystery. Like you just feel like you're going to walk into some nonsense when you enter into that hotel. It's very real. Like, I've stayed in places like that in the countryside in Britain because you just end up with these time capsule Victorian buildings that have managed to not evolve despite the introduction of electricity or anything down the Ooh. line. Ooh. <laughs> There's a few bed and breakfasts like that kind of in the northeast United States, but you tend to be able to skirt around them. Nothing's quite that old. Uh, so Nick approaches the desk to check in where an elderly woman welcomes him while half doing her crossword puzzle, of course, saying her first words to him fascism which she then goes on to explain is x and y and z down how many letters he gets his key from her as he leaves telling her hag the other crossword word that she'll 12, need to fill 12 in down. 12 down and makes his way up to his room the castle suite quote unquote which is still uh, rather dreary and notably looks a lot like a dungeon as it has some bars on the windows he doesn't stay long, instead heading to the streets, making for the local pub, where he orders a glass of cranberry juice, which, I, my understanding, is not what you normally order at a pub. No, I mean, if you're not getting a pint of beer, then what's the <laughs> bloody point? So, yeah, no, that was, it's an extreme, he commits an extreme faux pas for, for pub life by not coming in and ordering, like, <laughs> Fosters or something. I mean, it's, you know, you say it's an essential part of Britain, but we won't be drinking any British beers, because those taste odd. So, to, hmm. you know, yeah, they'll, uh, he'll, he'll have ordered something like an Australian beer or German <laughs> ale or something. Makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I uh, come from a state that has quite a few beers to its name, and none of them are very good. So everyone's American there. beers are. Yeah, y'all you, you, got a bit of a reputation around the world for having the worst beer ever. That's <laughs> yeah, it's fair. It's true. <laughs> the bartender and his wife, uh, or is that the correct term for bartender? Oh, uh, probably be landlord. 
Then you call it cool noise. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, but bartender works. All right. Uh, Roy and Mary, they welcome uh, the new sergeant in. As everyone in town seems to be aware of his arrival, he asks to borrow their paper, which they explain isn't theirs, as they're not particularly big fans of the local fish wrapper, which, again, I can only assume is something related to fish and chips. Um, it is. Ex- yes, exactly that. Back in, back in the day, they used to wrap fish and chips up in, in newspapers. Nice. Nice. A little cultural. This is, this is the episode of cultural exchange. Uh <laughs> Uh, they're, they're pissed at the paper, of course, not because it is no longer used for wrapping fish and chips, but instead because they listed Mary's age as 55 when she's actually 53. All the while 53. in the background. <laughs> uh, all the while in the backgrounds of these shots in the pub, uh, we are seeing glimpses of Nick Frost drinking his way through the pub, although his character has not been introduced yet. But all those Cornetto trilogy regulars will recognize our soon to be uh, leading man character entering the scene. Nick slowly realizes as he looks around how many uh, youths are out here drinking at the pub before flashing to the no-serving minors under 18 sign and finally deciding he must do something about this scourge of underage drinking goes over to a particularly sassy red-headed kid and asks him when his birthday is before promptly beginning to throw him and all the others out of the pub, uh, leaving only <laughs> himself and uh, Danny Nick Frost behind. Yeah. Which, incidentally, that, that first kid, I believe, said his birthday was February 22nd. So as of hmm. this recording, we're only four days shy of. So happy oh, birthday happy to birthday that kid. Happy birthday to, uh, yeah, redheaded kid <laughs> from the beginning of Hot Fuzz. Uh, well, <laughs> actually, icon. I guess he, w- he didn't have many more birthdays after that. I've just remembered. Ooh. Never mind. Ooh, awkward. <laughs> Ooh, so sorry. We'll have a memorial in his honor on the 22nd. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what we'll a pint in his name. Yeah, yeah. Pour one out for him. Uh, as he's throwing all these people out, of course, Roy and Mary try to laugh it off and say, oh, you know, it's better that they're in here than out there causing trouble. It's all for the greater good, the greater good. Greater uh, good. But Nick, Nick, he sticks the letter of the law. That's, that's his character. He's a by-the-books kind of man. Later on, after having emptied out the pub of its nightly customers, uh, he stumbles, uh, he walks out of the bar with Nick Frost as yet unnamed stumbling out behind him at the same time. And um, Nick stops to read the dedication on a nearby fountain in the square, kind of taking a quick glance at the names before noting that Frost is trying to get into his car, very clearly drunk, stumbling around. He stops him from drinking and driving and returns to staring at the fountain where there's a little bit of red graffiti on the side, uh, only to be snapped out of his investigative mode by Frost nearly running him over as he backs up his car to try and drive anyway. Uh, deciding he can't let this man drunk drive, he walks him to the station after, of course, asking where the station is, as it is yeah. his first it's day the on the job. It's little jokes like that even. that just get me every time. It's just like, oh, you're coming down to the station. <laughs> where is it? <laughs> and it just makes the, the writing feel much that, that much sharper. Like, it's it could be so easy to just have that scene be like, you're going to the station, and then we end, but adding that little joke at the end just brings the mood back up. On the way to the station, they, of course, run into a lot of miscreant teens that he kicked out of the pub earlier, including the iconic redhead whose birthday is coming up peeing on a wall. Uh, And when he finally opens the station door, he enters with a gaggle of miscreants and is greeted by the night shiftman who uh, sends Frost off to cell four to sleep off his drunken stupor and asks Nick if he really wants to process them all. (laughs) Yeah, played by uh, legendary British comedian Bill Bailey. He's a he's a comedian slash songwriter. He's very funny. (laughs) <laughs> this cast is really like a nice little who's who uh, a lot of Edgar Rice movies are like this where it's it's sort of just like a who's who of British comedy and pretty much performance yeah. um, acting 
my ability to speak English has rapidly deteriorated today, and we're just going to experience that over the next like couple minutes. Great time to, to record a podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Stupendous. I scheduled this, so that's on me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nick pens at the ready, decides that there's no need to fear. We're going to process all of these teens right now, and we go through another one of those quickly chopped cut montages processing the teens. You know, we've got the whole holding out the ID sign in front of them, taking their, taking their photos. <laughs> Um, my favorite of the teens is the kid who wears the traffic cone on his head the whole time. I think that he really spoke to me as a character. Um, I don't know if you have a favorite teen from the beginning of the movie. I, 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 I'm a stand for the kid with braces. It was when he's asked, nice. like, how old are you? He goes, ah! <laughs> <laughs> like, yep, no, I've a, been there. An excellent pick. After this very intense sequence of processing, uh, we cut to the next day where Nick wakes up and goes for his morning run in what I thought was a polo shirt, but might have just been a weirdly cut athletic shirt. Uh, it's and like he's it's greeted... tennis shirt, I think. <laughs> okay, that, that, that makes sense. I was like, what, what a bold choice to go running in business casual. Seemed, yeah, no, it doesn't seem like that'd be the good thing to wear while running, but, you know. <laughs> he's just so buttoned up, you know, he's got to literally show yep, that probably. through uh, film analysis. Uh <laughs> As he's running through the town, he's greeted by what seems to be every single figure and character from this quaint village. Um, before morning finally, sergeant. morning sergeant, morning sergeants, left and right. Morning sergeant. <laughs> he's finally approached uh, by another runner, Simon Skinner, who we learn runs the local supermarket, uh, and tells Nick to you know, lock him up. And this is the first time that we'll go into sort of ominous vision, which is when a mis- miscellaneous random villager will say something that sounds like it could be something you would say before you murder someone or committed a crime and the screen will go very slightly blue around the edges and the music will get darker for a moment and then we immediately follow up with the explanation which is of course uh, Skinner is not a slasher of people but a slasher of prices at his supermarket that he runs yes which incidentally is a real like Summerfield is a real chain of supermarkets in Britain like I was amazed that they gave permission to be in this considering what happens (laughs) yeah it's sort of like sieged at the end like oh product placement that'll be that'll be this will be great for our image we've got an entire store run by murderous employees that's a great look (laughs) Oh yeah, this will definitely, you know, convince the public to to shop at our stores. But Timothy Dalton plays uh, just evil so well, which is you know so good. He's he's such a, like got such a good sneer. Mm-hmm. You don't trust him for a minute, uh, and I think that's that's something that this movie does really well is uh, it tells the audience exactly who not to trust and who is probably. And you think going it might be a bait and switch? Like no, he's just straight out no, evil. It wasn't. He's just, just straight not, evil. Wasn't subtle. Yeah, it's just why he's evil will be revealed to be slightly different down the line. It's a little bit of a two parallel ways to interpret the same definitely evil characters. Nick finally makes his way to the police precinct where the sergeant won't tell the inspector that he's arrived because the inspector is, of course, not in yet. Everyone's taking this country station very casually, very uh, come in when you come in kind of attitude. He asks he also, after like, the doesn't seem to like recognize Angel mm-hmm. despite having met him the night before, which again is a setup for a clever joke later. <laughs> yes, and he asks after the drunk that he dropped off the night before that was in cell four. Uh, but when he goes to look in that cell, there's no one there. And as he opens the door to investigate further, the drunk appears behind him, now dressed in a policeman's uniform because he's not just a drunk; he's actually a cop. It's Danny Butterman, the son of the now appearing into the scene by exiting from the 
doorway behind them, Frank Butterman, the head inspector, um, who arrives and, of course, introduces himself and his son to Nick, who has made a very questionable first impression, but he did stick to his morals, so I can't really fault him for that one. Uh, Frank is something of a Wild West nut, which was... I've never really thought about those existing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's actually... Speak in Japan, like, there are reverse weeaboos in Japan who are obsessed with the Wild West. It's kind of amazing. But, uh, yeah, like, while, like, Westerns were, like, hugely popular in Britain around, like, his, especially mm-hmm. his generation. So, so yeah, that's, that's, yeah, it is, it's, it's, it's weird when you see it from the outside looking in, or vice versa. I'm not sure what, what point shall I make here, but, yeah, there are, <laughs> there are lots of, like, American, American West fanboys in Britain. Mm. Fascinating. You know, you never know what it, you never know what the rest of the world perceives you as until you watch an Edgar Wright movie and get one little glimpse of it for a moment. <laughs> oh yes, that's a great, great yes, look at the actual only way. Britain, Edgar Wright movie. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. This is, as far as I'm concerned, um, just like a, a travel guide to the British countryside. Yeah, that's every, how everyone every... should interpret this movie. <laughs> True to life in every way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but the Wild West nut, uh, the inspector, Frank Butterman, commends Nick for his zeal, but reminds him that, you know, you're not in London anymore. You don't have to take things quite as seriously. We have, uh, you know, a, we're one of the safest communities in the world because we have a very careful and considered approach. Um, and Nick parrots back the phrase, oh, for the greater good, which he heard from the bartenders the night before, uh, which seems to delight Butterman. Uh, he's also offered a piece of cake, which he vehemently refuses, and I love the shot of him getting offered the cake because it's the, it's a close-up of Nick, and the hand with a slice of cake on a plate just extends into the frame and tries to hit him in the face a few he times, and he's there, just like, kind of dodging. Just breaks mid-sentence, <laughs> like, yeah, no, no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just great uh, physical comedy there. We learned through this interview that Nick's predecessor, uh, Sergeant Popewell, was an exceptional officer, but he had a nervous breakdown after working in the countryside for a while. Uh, and the inspector starts to give Nick a tour of the distinctly no- not as slick and shiny as the London office uh, precinct. They start with the entirely empty evidence room. <laughs> Fantastic. And take a trip up to the Andes where there are two constables sitting around and smoking. Why are they called the Andes? Because they're both named Andrew. And talking to them is an uphill struggle as... Uh... As Danny is oh, not coming to oh. point out. <laughs> I also love go. that when they look in the, the right room, everything is covered in like dust and cobwebs. There's an actual hedgehog mm-hmm. just living in there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you get the sense that the actual uh, function of this building is not used very often. It's mostly just a place for them all to go clock in and hang out. They've got a swear box set up to donate to the church uh, with all the proceeds from all the swear words they use. It's very homey. Um, there's also there's a really funny joke on that because uh, every swear word on the box is is censored except for the the c word which is just written out in <laughs> full which is like arguably like like the worst swear word you can say in Britain mm-hmm. is just written out where and they didn't but like for some reason they didn't censor that one. <laughs> you know it's it, that it, you can just use your imagination to fill in the rest. Maybe there's some lesser known swear words that overlap. They're like there's no there's no two ways around this one. It's you just gotta keep it out there. Um, at the in the bullpen, they meet the full rest of the team. We have Sergeant Tony Fisher, PC Bob Walker, who exclusively talks in like a heavy kind of mumble. Um, so yeah, and, rural British accent. So he's he's talking like a farmer. So he's like, hey, hey, what you about? What you said, <laughs> uh, Saxon, you said? who's a very good boy. He's a dog. 
uh, and Doris Thatcherman, who's the only police woman in the precinct. Uh, upstairs, we have a room full of these uh, monitor screens, and we meet Tom Weaver, the civilian liaison to the Neighborhood Watch, who has this, like, crazy view over the entire village. He can keep track of everything that's going on all the time, and he kind of chats with Nick about his previous night of arresting miscreants, uh, although he notes he was disappointed that the hoodie-wearing figures sitting by the fountain, loitering, weren't arrested. He grows especially concerned when he learns about the light graffiti possibly left on the fountain, declaring that these hoodie wearers must be dealt with. Which implies if it left long enough, they also would have met a sticky end, which is disturbing, <laughs> considering. I, I think the most surprising part of this movie is that those hoodie wearers don't meet a sticky end. Um, they're sort of just Maybe, like the... Like the only ones who don't, really. <laughs> they're one of the only <laughs> miscreants. I use that word a lot in this podcast, but it's the fitting that don't uh, end up, Jules. unfortunately, meeting their end to the uh, villains of this whole situation. He also mentions that there's been a frequent appearance of a living statue, and he's perf- worried that the village will be balls deep in jugglers if they don't chase him off, which I just, that's just a great line. Again, and again, subtle jokes because they're, they're flipping through the, the different time coded times, and the statue mm-hmm. is remaining still in all of them. Like, it's just, I, love, I love that everything they do is some sort of joke. Yeah, it all feels very intentional and tightly constructed. There's nothing like, there's no time wasted. There's no, it, it's a very lean movie yeah. for, despite being two hours long. Yeah, every single, every cut, because like, even the, the scene, the, there's one cut that always stood out to me, because when they were doing the tour around the station, at mm-hmm. one point he screws up the picture of the uh, living statue, throws it over his shoulder, and as Danny head, like, headers it, that's when it cuts to the next scene. So like literally everything they're doing in every shot is leading into the next shot. It's like, damn, yes. this is some good directing. I'm getting like, oh. <laughs> Edgar Wright does that incredibly well of thinking of how the edit's going to look while he's directing the actual shoot itself. Uh, this movie is a great example of it. I think those like really fast cut montage scenes are the best examples. Uh, it's like you mentioned, the, the cuts that just perfectly transition one into another. So even though they're happening very rapidly, it all feels very fluid. It doesn't feel yeah. jumpy. That's so hard to pull off and they do it so well. Yeah, he's, a, he's very much movie. a sort of shoot for the edit kind of director. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, he's I, I've always really admired his his style of directing and editing. So Yeah, it's gorgeous. All the cops are sitting around kind of eating Black Forest Gateau, courtesy of Danny, because of his indiscretion, not being drunk last night, misplacing his helmet. For his drunken misdemeanor, he'll be providing Chunky Monkey ice cream for the next month. And you get the idea that uh, the inspector's son is sort of getting a little bit of a, a pass on getting written up for any crime, so long as he's keeping the department in baked well, goods and treats. I mean, the entire village is pretty much left to its own devices. <laughs> So. Indeed. <laughs> I mean, there's so much chunky monkey to eat. How could they multitask and do their jobs and consume all that ice cream? It just, you got to pick one. And I think they made yeah, I mean, uh, the only possible choice. <laughs> well, I mean, swans don't escape that often. So what's there to do? I know. I mean, what's the chances that one will get out over the course of this movie? Um, <laughs> since it is 1130, they decide to break for lunch, heading to the pub where Nick gets his token cranberry juice and is promptly hazed by the other officers for his big city ways and seriousness about the job, except for Danny, who is sort of interested in his more adventurous past career. He wants to know all about, you know, any sort of, uh, shootouts he's been in, stabbings and any sort of action he's experienced in his life. The very, uh, action movie idea of what a cop yeah, does. Immediately starts trying to vicariously live through Angel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Andes have a little line in here where they remind Nick that there are more guns in the country than in the city. Shout out to farmers and their mums. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Well, that was like, everyone's got guns here. Who? Farmers. Who else? Farmers' mums. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which mm-hmm. again comes back beautifully. It does. It cycles back around. It's important that it was noted here as a joke, but it's going to pay dividends later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and as they continue through their first day, Danny and Nick get partnered up and go out to patrol uh, as Danny continues to pester Nick with questions about his thrilling adventures and all sorts of cop things like the movie Bad Boys 2. Uh, <laughs> later that night, uh, neighbor the Neighborhood Watch holds a meeting and invite Nick uh, as it's taking place in his hotel. He meets with the rest of the... Village bigwigs, all members of the Neighborhood Watch. Uh, coincidentally, many of them have names that match the ones on the plaque of the fountain as they sort of playfully rib him and make introductions. A lot of the key characters we'll see go here. We meet uh, the, the town solicitor and uh, the owner of the, the corner stores and a local garden Resident doctor. Yeah. All that. All, all the usual cast of characters you'd expect to see in a, a quaint British town. Or I guess any quaint town. It's a British movie. We're going to go with that. (laughs) The meeting begins and they enter into a very um, war room style table. It's a perfect circle and it's very dark everywhere else. And during the meeting, a projector screen will come down behind them and it looks fully like the set of uh, Dr. Strangelove for a minute there, but just in color. (laughs) And they begin... I didn't get that reference. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime there's a circular table and people have a serious meeting around it, there's like a 50-50 chance that it looks a little bit like Dr. Strangelove. (laughs) Fair enough. um, And uh, as the meeting begins, everyone sort of filters in and takes their seat. Nick sitting in in this first of his Neighborhood Watch meetings. Uh, They open with, of course, talking about the birth of new twins in the village and then jump into discussing their very important business, the upcoming... Village of the Year contest and preparations for it, starting with eliminating the blight on their street, the living statue. Dun, dun, dun. I love how Angel gets they... a bit excited because they're talking like, oh, we've got this terrible thing. It's like, oh, hey, up. And then, no, it's living statue nope, again. You it's... see him visibly deflating. <laughs> yes, he, he zones out as they're like, okay, we're going to talk about, you know, small time village stuff. And he sort of mentally exits the scene. Uh, the next day, Nick is giving a seminar on procedural correctness and moral authority to some local school children. Uh, <laughs> as he opens the floor up for questions, only Danny raises his hand to ask about uh, any sort of exciting, violent events that he may have encountered. Is there, is there a place you can shoot someone in the head where they'll, they'll make their skull explode? <laughs> like, also, I love that he's sitting, like Danny's sitting cross-legged with the other kids. Yes. <laughs> He's just—he's just one of the uh, one of the school children in this scene. Um, at the end of the presentation, after field, you know trying to avoid fielding Danny's questions, uh, Nick gets approached by Mr. Messenger to have his picture taken for the local paper, uh, as well as asked a few questions. And of course, he's posing very officially with all the school children, and Mr. Messenger asks him, you know, maybe give the kid your hat or you know get, hold up your baton, and he's like, no, 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 Arrest I will the stand. teacher. It's like, no, yep, I think that gives the wrong message. So yeah, yes, he's stand very proper. None of it. Uh, but unfortunately, his properness can't save him from uh, editorial incorrectness because his name is misspelled in the paper the next day as Angle instead of Angel, and that quickly becomes his new nickname at the precinct. As a dyslexic watching this movie, I did not get that joke until people started calling him Sergeant Angle. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I had to go back and be like, wait, what's wrong about him being called Angle? Because I forgot that his name was Angel. <laughs> I was just like, gotcha. oh... That's why that's why it hurts him so much. I had to rewind a couple times, but we got there. Um, while he's on duty, he gets a call. And of course, as we may perhaps alluded to earlier, the swan has Softly. escaped from the castle. 
Uh, it the call is from a pi. <laughs> Yeah, uh, st- staker, staker <laughs> which Nick assumes means it's a crank call from someone trying to get him to say piss taker. But of course, we hard cut to Nick at the castle where he is interviewing uh, the very real and definitely not amused by his escaped swan, P.I. Staker. <laughs> he takes the description of the swan fully, plays it fully straight, takes it very seriously as this man describes to him what all swans look like. Um, long neck, beak, bird. <laughs> I mean, it's a swan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Nick and Danny set about trying to chase down said Swan, which will be the one criminal that perpetually gets away throughout this film. There's a there's a great moment in that montage where you see Danny has pulled out like he pulls out an expanding nightstick as if he's gonna like <laughs> whack the Swan, and yeah. Angel has to like stop him. <laughs> uh, truly, the Swan is the greatest foe of the the constables yeah. in this situation. I I was you know I mean. Swan danger actually comes back again, but like, f- funny mm-hmm. side note, I was terrified of swans growing up because someone told really? me that they can, yeah, they said that their, their necks are so strong they can break your leg or you break your arm oh. just with their neck muscles, which I, as a young t- child, misinterpreted to mean they can and they want to, they will if they <laughs> catch you. So My understanding I, of yeah. swans is that that might actually be true. I mean, yeah. I, I was always told, like, there, there's some of this park near where I grew up, and you're like, don't go near the swans. They will attack you unprovoked. You don't want to oh, yeah. go anywhere near them. So maybe there's some... Well, I guess I was right to run you know, as a child. Part. Yeah. <laughs> Saved my life, that childhood fear. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I was envisioning, like, their, ne- their necks, like, s- slithering around you like a snake to Ooh. snap your bones into pieces. Like, there was, you know, it was, it was pretty vivid. So... <laughs> So that's a little fun little side note to Dom's neuroses. Yeah. There's a a new phobia for all of our listeners out there. (laughs) Uh, Swans, (laughs) specifically. After their unsuccessful swan chase, the duo stops to get a Cornetto ice cream from the shop, which is what ties the trilogy together in all of the movies. They get this particular brand of ice cream you can get from like a freezer um, at the corner store and sit in the car to eat it. Danny seems to feel that there's not much going on, and that's why he's taking his job so casually. But Nick uh, reprimands him. There's there's always something going on. You should always be watching, always asking questions. And then he kind of points out a few different things in the scene that are, are bugging him in the town square. Why is Mr. Treacher in that big, puffy coat? Uh, why has this man got his hat pulled all the way down? Uh, why is that? What's that guy's deal? And he looks over to Lurch, <laughs> Michael, a, a massive <laughs> oh, man who's... Mom and sister are the same, and also he will only say the word yarp every time he speaks on screen. <laughs> yarp. Yarp. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, again, it's, it's subtle, but it's just so funny. Just uh, like working different situations where he would like, yarp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not really something that's ever necessarily explained. It's just you just accept that that's how this guy is, and it's funnier yeah. that way, frankly. Um, at the grocers, Nick gets called to the manager's office where we get exposed to uh, Michael's thing where he only says Yarp, as well as uh, Skinner in his office who has called Nick up just to say thanks for supporting the local store and getting us a little sly dig in at him having enough free time to go shopping during his shift. Uh, and as they go back and forth in this conversation and Nick turns to leave, he spots a shoplifter on the um cameras in the room and runs off to confront him and a chase begins as <laughs> Nick yep. and Danny who has just risen from his uh, reading discount action movie DVD boxes stupor uh, joins in on the chase as they hustle through the neighborhood <laughs> uh, Which, a... of course includes the the mandatory over the gardens joke that's in every yes. cartoon movie that's uh, 
Although that's, yes, the... it's a direct callback to to the trampoline boss of uh, uh, Shaun of the Dead. Yes. Uh, there's a moment where the shoplifter rounds a corner, and in order to cut him off, they well, he rounds a corner, Nick follows closely after, and a horde of moms pushing their strollers are walking towards him, blocking his path, so he shouts, MOTHER! And then proceeds to decide he needs to take a shortcut, which is where the jumping over the fences comes into play. Nick successfully, Danny less so. Uh, there's a nice moment in this scene where, as they're kind of running through, the neighborhood watch is on their walkie-talkies, narrating what's happening to each other as they pass by, to kind of give you an idea of just how much visibility they have throughout the village. And as they leap into the alley with the shoplifter having cut up with him, uh, Nick spots the swan and must, in a moment, decide between giving chase to the swan and giving chase to the shoplifter. I, lo- I love how genuinely like torn he is. Like my two, du- my two very important duties: swan and shoplifters. My two greatest foes. The swan is truly like <laughs> the single greatest enemy that they have in, in this village. Yeah. Um, if it hadn't like decided to join their side at the end, they probably never would have like mm-hmm. saved the day. Yeah, it's truly, the Swan has a redemption arc throughout this movie, starting out fully antagonistic, and by the end, he will have completed his metamorphosis into, into protagonistum. It's it's a fascinating, I think we don't talk about the Swan's arc as a character enough when we're discussing this movie. I think this is a really good time to unpack that. It's a good point. We should be the first mm-hmm. people to give it in, like, the, the point of this video essay is to talk about the Swan. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yes. We need to talk about the Swan. That's the thumbnail, and just a big picture of the Swan's face and really close up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like that other detail in this chase as they pass by the hoodie-wearing graffiti artists from the beginning of the movie as they are continuing the chase to just kind of give the sense of um, how often characters in the background of this movie repeat or reoccur uh, in the background of other shots where they're not really important. It kind of gives a sense of like just how tight-knit this community is. Um, they also they also mix in just a tiny little morning sergeant as someone cuts him off with a bicycle. Like a little callback <laughs> to that earlier. Yes. Uh Despite Nick's good work in catching this shoplifter, uh, Skinner doesn't want to press any charges. They don't want to make him just another statistic. Uh, and the inspector's like, don't worry, Nick, I'll, I'll handle all of this, even though he's you know, clearly very agitated that they're not interested in booking the criminal. Later on, Nick and Danny are camping out watching the speedometer as uh, Danny talks about action movies and how badly he wants proper action and shit to happen in his very boring little hamlet. Uh, every once in a while, they'll call out the speed of a car that goes by 29, 30, etc. to punctuate their conversation. As they are sort of chatting, a speedster zooms on by, catching their attention, going much above the speed limit. Uh, it's Mr. Blower, the solicitor, and they pull him over when he begins to launch into his explanation of, oh, I'm, I'm late to rehearsal for a homage to Romeo and Juliet, uh, and in his kind of way to make conversation and hopefully get out of a ticket. But Nick, who is never one to let anything slide, holds true to his duty and writes down everything that Mr. Blower is saying to his increased agitation. Uh, eventually him accepting the ticket and driving off. Successfully having solved that situation, Nick and Danny return to their car, where Nick explains just how important his notebook is. It's his most valuable tool of the trade. Um, And Danny reveals that that is a sentiment that he does not share, making a flip book out of his notebook instead. (laughs) (laughs) That's of someone getting shot in the face, which is, yep, that's just awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, he just really wanted to be more of like a storyteller than a cop. He just fell into this job uh, because of what his dad wanted him to do. At the end of the day, Danny asks Nick if he'd like to hit the pub, but Nick seems to not be all that interested in doing anything after work. Uh, But as they're leaving, 
They're told that Mr. Blower had left two tickets for Romeo and Juliet as an apology to the two of them for speeding. Uh, but Nick tries to refuse them since they can't accept gifts from someone they just rebuked. But it's to no avail as the <laughs> as uh, Butterman appears and says, hey, can you two make an appearance at the show on behalf of the department? And they must attend anyway. Yeah, much to their chagrin, considering the play doesn't, is not very good. No, it's um pretty much just like the Baz Luhrmann version of Romeo plus yes! Juliet. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, because he's wearing the exactly arm and they've got that. guns for some reason. Yeah, yeah, they've got guns for some reason. They're wearing the Halloween costumes from the ball scene, then the angel costume and the knight's armor. And then they jump into a rendition of Love Fool at the end. It's a very for bad... For some reason, yeah. <laughs> it's, some I know, reason. It's, it's like, it's an amazing look at like uh, uh, interpretation of a bad play because it's like, uh-huh. just little things like the gun, she just yells bang as she holds it to her head. <laughs> <laughs> but every it's, conceivable it's way this could theater. suck they do yeah it's bad theater at its finest uh, and as Nick will note the only truly uh, believable moment is when um, the leading man Mr. Blower and his leading lady Eve are making out on stage as uh, Romeo and Juliet have their final kiss after the play is over the reporter from the Stanford Citizen once again pesters Nick suggesting a few misleading quotes for him before Skinner scares him off <laughs> Yeah, was a police officer endorses teen suicide. It's like I don't think that's appropriate. <laughs> uh, and Skinner sort of pulls him into conversation with Mr. Blower and Eve, his leading lady, who works uh, in a government position where she knows quite a few of people's dirty little secrets. This movie is it's really lot, good. A lot at, of um, foreshadowing. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of hiding. We get another one of those Skinner moments where he's like, "Oh, drive safe," or. You know, Oh, He's, just, yeah, well, I'd uh, love to chop your head, head open and seal the secrets. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's, there's well, so yeah, many uh, of them; they just start to blend together. <laughs> for him in particular, like basically everything he has said is a thinly veiled foreshadowing mm-hmm. of someone's horrible death later, which is yeah. So, Ugh. Uh, as they're leaving this sort of mingling after the show, Mr. Blower once more apologizes to Nick and Danny. Um, Nick telling him not to worry about it, but leaving him with a very passive-aggressive drive safe as he declares that he hopes this is the last they see of Mr. Blower. As they pass <laughs> by a red-lit alley, a very ominous hooded figure watches them leave before ducking back into the theater. Later that night, Mr. Blower and Eve are toasting each other in the dressing room, celebrating the opening night of their interpretation of Romeo and Juliet, uh, but a knock at the door rouses them to attention, and they open it only to be viciously stabbed by an unseen figure. The next morning, Nick is woken up by a frantic phone call as someone has been decaffeinated. I mean, decapitated. (laughs) I love that. Decaffeinated? What? (laughs) We hard cut to the heads of Mr. Blower and Eve laying in the middle of the road, just around where they were pulled over the the day before. As we follow the sergeants through the scene, we see their car and the gang walks us through the theory that the duo must have hit their head on a sign at some speed to have lost their heads in such a way. Um, And as they sort of float this theory, they check in with Sergeant Angel, who suggests that they actually should do their jobs and lock down the scene, put up police tape, direct traffic around it, etc., etc. Which all these small-time cops are surprisingly blasé about the decapitated corpses, like, covered in blood, (laughs) just like mere feet from them. Just like, oh, well, you know, Mm -hmm. guess we better close off the road then. That's a terrible accent. Everyone in Britain's going to be so mad at me. But uh, (laughs) yeah, I was just like, wow, they're taking it surprisingly well. Yeah, something uh, that this movie, I think, does well is kind of established the attitude the town has through just the way they're reacting to these situations because for us the audience it's very shocking two people have just been 
we know they've been brutally murdered and now their heads are lying in the street. Um, but as we'll learn, this town is under the impression that there's just an unusually high number of accidents that happen. Uh, right, so they're yes. conditioned to assume this is just another one of those accidents. I didn't think of that, yeah, because there's so many accidents, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. They've just gotten used to seeing corpses everywhere. They just think it's, this is another Tuesday. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, you know, they're a little laissez-faire about the whole thing. After they kind of finally do shut down the scene, folks in cars keep stopping on by, including Skinner, who pulls up and asks what happened. Uh, Nick is like, oh, it's a car accident, and suspiciously seems to already know everyone who was involved, even though they haven't officially said who died in this accident. Later on, the Anders and Nick go back and forth about whether something actually happened or it was just an accident, and the Anders are resistant to doing any legwork. They're kind of the assholes of the... uh, the precinct, <laughs> the, the frat boys, yeah. the, yeah, the bros. Nick explains that the reason he's suspicious of this event is because there were no skid marks at the scene, meaning that Mr. Blower lost control of the car and didn't apply the brakes for nearly 300 yards. And that means that he didn't make any attempt to stop his and Eve's uh, inevitable fate beheading. Does skid mark mean the same thing in the US as it does in the UK? Yes, and they did make a joke about that uh, in the movie when he okay. said it. Just checking. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, (laughs) As he kind of comes to this conclusion, the inspector sends the lads off to deal with an old man who's been clipping hedges that don't belong to him, conveniently redirecting their attention away from the potential murder scene. As they head off, they take Saxon and Walker with them. Uh, As Danny explains, they're going to need Walker in order to speak with this farmer who speaks in the uh, very muttery style that Walker does yep. as well. He, his accent's even more pronounced. They so need two layers of interpretation. First mm-hmm. you have the farmer, mm-hmm. and then Walker will say something, and then Danny will translate for Angel. Yes. <laughs> That's why you have a good interpre- interpreter department. You know, it's very, it's very important to be able to speak to everyone of your constituents. Um, as they're talking, the hedge thing resolves rather nicely. They're like, dude, you just... If it's not your hedge, you just have to ask first. Just cut some. Don't you can't just cut someone else's hedges. And the farmer seems to be amenable to that. Uh, but as they're talking, Nick notices his shotgun and asks if he has a license for it, which of course he does, for this one. Uh, and <laughs> we will cut to his massive arsenal that he has stockpiled in his house. <laughs> I love this only explanation. Like, where did you? Yeah, where did you get all of these guns? Like I found them. Only explanation yes. we get for how he ended up with this, like, enough guns to take out Russia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Including a sea mine, which, as he, <laughs> as he's uh, explaining, he's like, it's just a load of junk I found. He smacks the sea mine uh, with the butt of his shotgun, and it starts ticking. The whole crew rushes out of the farmhouse, but after a moment, nothing happens. The sea mine is deactivated. Uh, they take everything back to the precinct and load it all up into the empty evidence room. So now they have a veritable arsenal at their disposal, including the sea mine, which is convenient, just sitting there nice front and center. Uh, Nick commands Danny on their hall for the day. And this time when Danny invites him to go to the pub after work, he agrees. They go out to get drinks. Uh, Nick actually getting a pint this time, although not before trying to order uh, wine to... Little success. <laughs> what do you have? We got wed and uh, we're white. Yeah. <laughs> um, also at the pub, of course, the Andes who are chatting about the incident earlier. It seems that his hunches aren't really playing out so much. The jealous wife of uh, the solicitor angle isn't really playing out at all. And the skeevy attorney doesn't seem to have any immediate enemies. Um, the sergeants helpfully remind him that it's not... His job to investigate this case, he's on swan duty after all. 
Nick and Danny sort of sit and chat as Nick continues to work through his notes on the case. He just can't put it down. Uh, And Danny tries to distract him. He asks why he wanted to be a cop in the first place. And Nick explains that it's because of his uncle Derek, who was also a cop uh, and gave him a little like pedal police car. And he was, he was even like this as a kid, even though his uncle Derek would go on to be arrested for selling drugs to teenagers, which is probably how he bought the car in the first place. (laughs) Uh, but he had to prove to himself that he could be righteous. Um, Nick throws the question back at Danny, but his answer is somewhat less convincing. Uh, but he does kind of drop that his mom died in a tragic accident. Uh, and then he just kind of does what his dad wants him to. Danny relieves the tension of that situation by pulling a trick where he stabs a ketchup packet and pretends it's his eye. <laughs> and the two kind of which... laugh and drink into the evening, which is some interesting sleight of hand. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that was pretty like graphic. <laughs> like even like watching the film I was like, "Holy shit!" Oh, okay. Like that. That's yeah. Some yeah. Crazy I've always wondered if you could actually pull that off with the yeah. That that ketchup is incredibly like <laughs> viscous and like violently exploding outwards. Yeah. So. Suspiciously similar to like a blood uh, packet you would use yeah. in special effects. <laughs> um, I have to wonder if there's any brand of ketchup that would actually function for that. But for science. That's for science. We gotta we gotta go get yep. several different ketchup packets from several different locations and just stab each of them to figure out which one is the best the the best yep. approximation. I was thinking watching that scene because they, they start having a few drinks after that, and uh, mm-hmm. one thing that occurred to me is like, man, with the British economy in the toilet the way it is, there's no way you could get like four rounds in from twenty quid anymore. That's just <laughs> that's the most unrealistic part of the movie now. Yeah, it's always funny when you watch a movie. This movie came out in two thousand seven, so it's you know third. Over oh god, pre Brexit. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's always fun to watch movies that are old enough to be in the past and before things got uh, as inflated as they did now. It, it happens. You have U.S. movies all the time where the prices of something is just radically different than it would be, because uh, that's uh, never the thing one... you expect to change. Yeah, the one movie that did it in reverse, which I thought was a really funny joke, was that awful iRobot adaptation. Oh. Like Will Smith gets <laughs> this is two beers. It's like forty two dollars, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> Some fancy beers. There are definitely places you could get forty-two dollar beers, but it's what? If you go to like a swanky enough place and they try and give you some like real niche shit, don't fall for it. Good to know. But people will try. I'm saying this as someone who regularly drinks the cheapest beer I can get my hand on. So, well, we've so we've reached the dystopian future of iRobot. That's just great to know. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah, it, it. We're like five or six dystopian future's deep at this point it's best not to dwell on it too much <laughs> so nick runs into mr skinner as he always seems to do at the pub as he and george continue to drink uh and he's or as mr skinner and george drink to their friends recent beheading george uh, the refrigerator magnet and recent wealthy man is piss drunk and trying to stumble to the bathroom prompting skinner to drop an ominous he'll be in bits tomorrow <laughs> oh <laughs> The lighting always changes when he does these lines too. It's just so funny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's amazing. Like I said, it was it would have been such a funny bait and switch if he hadn't been the killer. But it, then mm-hmm. they flipped it around. It's like a tri- it's like a double bait and switch. It's like no, it re- yeah. he really is just being ominous as hell because he's ominous <laughs> as hell. You know, he's just in it for the drama. Uh, he's a great fan of the theater, and he wants to express that in his day-to-day life. Uh, Nick and Danny end up walk- walking the very drunk George home after he starts to pee on a uh, like video arcade game in the corner. Um, a different machine, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, to a, and they they bring him to his very gaudy home, which Danny points out doesn't very much fit the village's rustic aesthetic. They, 
drop him at home and wander away past I another... Love the ex- the, he's just like, how much do I owe you guys? And then Danny's just instantly like, oh, 20 quid. So he passes and then Dan, uh, <laughs> Nicholas like pulls it off and says, like, here's your change. <laughs> so he returns his uh, money to him. Yeah, it's good cop, bad cop. Uh, very much. And when as they drop him home as well, they pass by another alleyway where there is yet another suspiciously red-lit hooded figure who walks off in the direction of the house as they pass by. On their walk home, Danny invites Nick over to his place for another beer, and he decides to hang out. Meanwhile, George is off getting stabbed by another spooky figure. We're going to cross-cut between Danny and Nick having their nice little bonding moment, and George getting brutally murdered for the next couple minutes, so just sort of brace yourself for that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a nice little little duality of village life. Uh, (laughs) At Danny's, Nick suggests that Danny uh, should consider getting a houseplant, as his home is very um, frat (laughs) house-esque. Yeah, he's been living out of cardboard boxes for five years, it turns out. <laughs> uh, which I highly agree with, because houseplants are great. Ten out of ten. Uh, Peace lilies, very hard to kill, but they're dramatic. If you don't water them for a few days, they'll fully flop over, but then you give them water and they'll pop right back up that night. They are toxic for cats, though, so be aware. I was um, I was about to mention, I've slowly reduced my houseplants to zero because my cats, like, so Terry in particular loves <laughs> eating anything green. Like, Aww. I don't know why, but he's like, even cacti, like, he must be getting spiked, but he's still like, nom, nom, nom. So, like, okay, he's so we're just really not going to do any plants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's committed to yeah. the theme now. It doesn't, doesn't matter if he doesn't enjoy it, he has to eat every plant. <laughs> it's about the challenge, you know? The cacti is just, like, the boss level. <laughs> I have I've done something very similar uh, since I got my cat Ziggy. I've reduced the amount of houseplants I have. Although she's been pretty good about not eating any of them, I don't know how much of that is just that she can't reach the shelves that they're on, or how much of it is that she's give, not interested. Give in her plants. time. Like you'll slowly, like as she gets to know the house, <laughs> she'll slowly figure out ways to get on into every corner, every ceiling. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, as uh, he's getting this interior decoration advice from Nick. Um, Danny sort of brings up that Nick is fully obsessed with his job and he's like, you know, being obsessed is good because you're very good at what you do, but you got to learn how to switch it off. Let me show you how you switch it off. And he opens his master closet to reveal the DVD library to end all DVD libraries. And as a huge film nerd, that was like the glory shot of the film for me. It's like, this is designed by someone who also loves movies. Yeah, it was a good payoff because like there's a very sort of homoerotically charged scene because they're sort of leaning mm-hmm. close to each other. It's like I'll sh- I'll show you how to switch it off, and then the the, the payoff <laughs> being the the massive uh, like DVD orgasm. Yep. <laughs> uh, they settle in to watch a double feature of Bad Boys Two and Point Break as the murderers back at George's house. Remember, remember that George is getting murdered because he's it's mid breakfast. Uh, he's getting murdered. The the murderer is making a, a full fry up. Um, Beans, toast, etc. He's making beans on toast. It's a, it's the like if, if you're blind drunk at like four in the morning and you need mm. like a good like really chavvy British like breakfast slash dinner <laughs> beans on toast. Oh, that'll do you perfect. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> I've never been a beans <laughs> for breakfast kind of person, but that's probably just the dirty American coming out. After the end of their first movie, Danny asks what Nick thinks, and one of my favorite lines in the movie follows, so I wrote it down verbatim. Uh, while I won't argue that it was a no-holds-barred, adrenaline-filled thrill ride, <laughs> there's no- but there's no way you could perpetuate that amount of carnage and mayhem and not incur a significant amount of paperwork, which was very in-character <laughs> for Nick to yep. be thinking about the paperwork while watching Bad Boys 2. <laughs> or yep, very, I mean, that's they don't mention the paperwork a lot in cop movies, so it's fair, no. fair play to him. Yeah, I mean, 
he's doing his best to show us the the glamour of the job and the the real side as well you know there's a lot of pencil pushing <laughs> um Nick ain't seen nothing, though, because the next movie is about to go on, and uh, as we say that it's about to go off, we cut to George's house, where things are indeed going off as it explodes, um, presumably from the fire that was left behind by the murderer as he staged the scene. Yep. The next morning... I think you used the put left the gas on the oven. I think that was the, yeah. the mo- modus operandi. Yeah, like a gas fire kind of situation. Um, always make sure you turn your stoves off, kids. The next morning, the sound of Bad Boys 2 kind of fades out as Nick gets a call. It's crime number two time. At the scene, the Emmy says, surely, you know, this was a fry-up gone wrong. Uh, it's ironic that the refrigerator magnet will be killed by an oven. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Lots of riffing on his career choice and accidental death. Once again, Sergeant Angel gives the procedure for how to actually lock down the crime scene as Nick once more spots Skinner driving by very suspiciously staring and making very intentional eye contact with everyone who's work investigating yeah, well, the murder. Well, uh, fire by uh, hell, <laughs> Lords of Hell fireplace in the background. I don't know what that song's actually called. It's like fire. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes. I also don't know the name of the song off the top of my head. Edgar Wright, Edgar Wright has great um, soundtracks. Oftentimes, there are songs I do not know. It's sort of the opposite direction of like the James Gunn soundtrack, or like all of these are like the biggest hit for the respective band. Uh, Edgar Wright is like, okay, these are all bands I like, and these are just songs that I really like that think fit well here. He's, it's more of like an indie music selection sometimes. Not always, but a lot of the time. Respect. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's like a little learning experience every time a new uh, LP comes out. <laughs> The Anders roll up and they start talking shit again and Nick once more gets mad about how three people have died in a week. This can't possibly all be accidents. Um, But their progressive ribbing gives Nick an idea because after all, if he didn't see anything, he was the last one to drop off. George, who could have seen what happened to George? Of course, it's the neighborhood watch with all their crazy spy cams all over the entire village monitoring everyone constantly. They head for the precinct watch room replay the tape which unfortunately only catches the edge of the explosion and uh you know it just seems to be a bit of a dead end nick thinks that he might be able to actually wrestle a clue out of this when tom says that something on the tape did catch his eye but of course the tape he cuts to is just uh sanford's most wanted swan he's continuing his reign of terror <laughs> throughout the night you're watching villain of the plot yes he i mean it's heavily implied that uh, the swan could have been the arsonist in this scenario. As he, as Nick continues to try and investigate this new case, he once again gets sent off into something much more mund- mundane. He's going to go watch the church fate uh, at the behest of Frank. Um, at the fate, Nick watches the happy locals all enjoying these festivities, landing on the reporter uh, and Skinner, who is watching the reporter from a distance holding an axe, I think. <laughs> It's it's a it's a club. He's play, he was ah. advertising for Smack the Rat, which is oh. uh, you you drop a little rubber rat through a tube and you have to try and whack it with like a a, a rounders club before it hits the ground. Huh. So it, it, I think he's it was again it was foreshadowing because he considers the reporter the rat because mm. you know in the the later conspiracy that's revealed he was giving right. away information. So he was basically doing another. This is how you're going to die. We're going to smack the rat. <laughs> <laughs> So. That's in, that's good context because like the closest game to that I can think of that might be a, one of these be a, like a whack a mole situation. So we got the it's like, yeah, it's like that. Yeah. It's just yeah, 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 with a vertical drop basically. 
Interesting. Interesting. I feel like I'm learning so much on this podcast. Yeah. This is fun. I think it's a bizarre <laughs> like tie back to bubonic plague times, I think, where you actually had to smack. Huh. Like, if you saw a rat, you're supposed to hit it and kill it. Uh, I think, like, most... Most, like, child activities in Britain date back to some sort of horrible event where lots of people died. <laughs> uplifting. Uh, yeah. Speaking of uplifting, Nick's particularly ominous train of thought is interrupted by the appearance of all the other cops who are just kind of here enjoying the fate, including Danny and Frank and Anders. Um, Danny pulls him away from his duty to go to an air rifle booth where if he hits the cans or the little tin people, he can win a prize. A uh, booth ran notably by the doctor of the town. Nick doesn't love guns, but he decides to, for the sake of Danny, uh, play along and easily finishes off the little tin people, winning himself a very large stuffed yeah. monkey. <laughs> With apparently a fully automatic air rifle. Because <laughs> he's like, ting, 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 and yeah, reload was, the entire uh, time. It's an effective device, apparently. <laughs> Much less janky than any of the uh, air rifle booths in the town fairs I've been to in my life. I, funny story, like, I mean, I felt for the doctor who Danny accidentally... He takes the gun and accidentally shoots the doctor in the leg. Because um, mm. I, in my in my youth, actually also managed to shoot myself with an air rifle once, and it blew nerds. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. yeah, they're so. not great. But anyway, the doctor gets carted away to tend to his uh, air rifle wound. And as this kerfuffle is happening, Mr. Messenger, the reporter, catches Nick once again, this time very ominously asking to speak with him about George alone. And he tells him to meet at the churchyard at three. As Nick ponders what he wants, he's called to the stage by the Reverend to announce the winners of the uh, Tambala uh, raffle, essentially. Being delayed by this moment of celebrity, uh, he constantly is watching the clock and reading out the names uh, as Messenger goes to wait in the courtyard. And we begin to see a hooded figure making his way up the steps of the church steeple. <laughs> Once again, with, with just nothing but foreshadowing, because the first person who wins is Skinner. It's like, oh, he's not mm-hmm. here. He's, he's off doing, you know, he's off in the bathroom. And then, and then Messenger wins. It's like, Messenger, your time, your number's up. <laughs> it's like, oh, God. <laughs> Yes, and as as uh, Nick pulls out Messenger's name, as the Reverend announces that his time is up, uh, the hooded figure makes it to the top of the church and pushes a large rock uh, pediment down, which... I mean, Blue's going to uh, be upset with you for not knowing what that <laughs> s- s- oh no. architecture thing was. <laughs> I was trying to think of it. <laughs> Blue, I swear I pay attention when you talk about architecture. I just Everything goes in one ear and out the other. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what it's supposed to be called? I do I'm going to put you on the spot, too. Okay. I was hoping you wouldn't draw attention to that. No, it's like, just part the steeple, I guess. It's like a... Yeah. Let's just say large rock. Let's just drive some people large nuts. Large decorative rock. It's That's all you really need to know. <laughs> yeah, large, Like, everything, everything is either a dome or it's a large decorative rock. That's all you need yeah. to know about architecture. Yeah, that, that's the only two categories that things can fit into. Um, but as this rock goes over the edge, uh, Nick does manage to get away from the raffle and just rounds the corner into the courtyard as the clock strikes three. Uh, and he sees the rock fall directly onto poor Messenger's head uh, in a perfect triangular impact. It's very gory. Extremely graphic. Like it's <laughs> it's amazing how this movie juxtaposes like very lighthearted humor with like the most extreme on-screen mm-hmm. gore you could expect from an R-rated movie. Yeah, yeah. This is not the only instance of it either. It's not like there's one scene and it's done. It's gonna carry through to the end. It's pretty much uh, continuous. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. A crowd gathers around this newest accident as the uh, investigator Frank tells all of them, you know, oh, it's just an accident, just an accident. Um, Nick rushes up the church spire trying to catch anything that might be up there, but on the roof he finds nothing. He goes to the investigator and says he thinks that all of these deaths are linked, uh, leading Frank to realize that there this is in fact a crime scene. It's not just an accident. And once again, everyone has to shift into work mode, setting up their various tasks. Uh, it seems as though Nick and Danny are going to get an important role in all of this. And then their role is revealed to be standing on guard in the rain to make sure that people don't go walking all over the crime scene. The Andes are frustrated because they're late for the pub. Nick is frustrated that no one's taking this seriously. Tensions are just running high across the board. Danny, too. I, lo- I love that through all this, Danny is still wearing his tiny cowboy hat. Like he's <laughs> yeah. put the he's put the plastic covering over it to protect it from the rain, but he hasn't changed mm-hmm. into his police uniform. <laughs> and he's also still holding the large monkey that uh, Nick yeah. won from the shooting booth. <laughs> yeah. uh, Danny does want to go home, though, since nothing seems to be going on, and Nick gets uh, frustrated that he isn't taking this as seriously as Nick is, and Danny runs off in a huff, taking the monkey with him. When Nick returns home at the end of the day to his hotel room, he finds the monkey sitting there, along with a note that was left at reception. Uh, Danny did take the time to return it. So their, their friendship is is still holding true, even if they face rough patches here and there. Um and, and Nick begins to wade through the Sanford Citizen, the newspaper that Messenger published, as a, a statement by the Andes. If you want to read through it all, be my guest. Uh, kind of hits with him, and he does the, the legwork of his investigation. Back at the precinct, after having kind of put together all the clues while skimming through a montage of headlines and highlighting and everyone's last-minute academic paper-writing frenzy, um... Nick approaches Danny, thanks him for returning the monkey, and uh, drops the case file, which he wants to deliberate with him, because they're partners. Before they can get to it, though, Nick gets a call from London. Uh, he let, he lets it go to voicemail. He's like, call me back, call me back. I'll, I'll call him back. It's fine. We don't, London can wait. <laughs> he's, he's dedicated to his new position when a day ago maybe he would have gone back home. Um, growth? Character, character growth? Um, it's, it's an arc? <laughs> It was interesting to me that he doesn't actually pick up the phone to London at all. I, I almost wonder if there was a scene that they had shot where he did get a call from London earlier on just to like check in with how he's doing or something that he did pick up. Uh, because it struck me that this will happen twice where it feels like there should be a third call in there just by the three-act kind of structure. But uh, it's not something that's so important True. that it throws the, the movie off that much. <laughs> True. I mean, yeah, because he has the two calls. It's the one where he's just like, I'll call him back. The one where uh, mm-hmm. he's armed to the teeth later, which we'll get to. <laughs> yes. On patrol again, Nick runs Danny through his thoughts on the case. The messenger must have uncovered an important information about George, who fancied himself quite a developer and had big plans for Sanford. Uh, and George, of course, was a client of Mr. Blower, and Eve was Mr. Blower's leading lady, and who also worked for the Council of Planning and Development, connecting all of these characters into a web of land development yeah. and... Yeah, Danny's commentary during yeah during this expo- the exposition dump like Danny's mm-hmm. Danny's like he just adds in little things like and like the most random and inconsequential or like deeply inappropriate stuff as this as this <laughs> like dialogue is coming out. Yes, and despite all of this evidence, Danny still thinks that this all might just be unconnected accidents. Uh, they're interrupted on this train of thought by Frank once again uh, because it, they have a cake for Danny. It's his birthday. Nick didn't know, so he rushes off for a personal errand straight to the like garden supply store flower shop uh, to buy a peace lily for Danny, the same houseplant that Nick has. 
And as he's there, he notices Miss Tiller is closing up. She's moving away for good. She's going to leave town. Uh, She explains as she's wrapping up his plant that they were going to sell to George and uh, move to Buford Abbey. But, um, you know, she had some insider information from Blower who knew where the new bypass road was going to go. And she was able to sell the land for 10 times what George was offering to some developers from London and kind of connects all of the characters that Nick was starting to put together in her story. Um, Really tying all the threads together. And I love this because she is delivering every single line and anytime she says the name of a character who has died, she immediately follows it with God rest them. Uh, So she says it about 35 times during the conversation. Because at this point, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like half the background characters are dead by this point. Mm-hmm. And Nick just looks progressively more horrified as he's putting all of this together. Uh, he excuses himself, and as he leaves to go to his car for a moment, the uh, glass walls of the store let us see a hooded figure walk in uh, <laughs> behind him. And when Nick turns around, this time he actually sees the incident as the hooded figure stabs the flower lady with her very own uh, shears. And Nick immediately begins to give chase to, this time, a very real, invisible, hooded figure. They flee through the shops and greenhouses, escaping eventually through some brambles, and the figure taking off across the field into mystery land, presumably to go hang out with the swan. I have to assume that that's a B-plot. Um, the swan is running the whole scheme at this point. It's the only antagonist you've been to introduced to. Ma- Lord and Master the yes. Swan. Yep. Exactly, exactly. He's the, he's, the, he's, the, he's the lich of this all. He's our, he's our main villain. Um... Back at the precinct, everyone is again like, are you sure this wasn't an accident? But this time Nick is certain. He's like, I saw a woman get stabbed with her own shears. I was there! (laughs) Um, But everyone just kind of continues to mock him. They don't believe him. They just think he's going crazy and mad. Uh, Eventually, Frank calls him into his office and kind of tries to talk him down. He's like, there hasn't been a recorded murder in Sanford in 20 years. Um, but despite this, Nick is certain, and what's more, he claims he knows who did it. The boys march themselves down to Skinner's office at the, uh, grocery store once again to arrest him on suspicion of murder, uh, of Leslie Tiller and all the rest of them, of course. Skinner asks Nick, why would, tell me, detect, why would I have done the murder? It's our, we've assembled all our suspects scene at the end of every Agatha Christie, at the end of every, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, and Nick walks us through his clues, his odd appearances of Skinner at the scenes of the the car wreck and the other crime scenes, his suspicions of George's bypass product project, potentially bringing in a new shopping center to compete with the supermarket that Skinner runs, uh, his various lines expressing wishes to behead, you know, chop up. Yep. Well, basically everything that's <laughs> yeah. been set up is coming all to coming together. And then yes. yeah, a lot of and, a lot of stuff. And my favorite uh clue, his skills as a fun runner, which he used to escape from Nick after the murder of Leslie the Flower Lady. <laughs> uh, yeah. he's got a little trophy he holds up. <laughs> it turns out as through all of these reveals, Skinner is actually a cousin to Leslie. He's cousin Sissy that she alluded to a few times when talking about moving away and who will be mad about that. <laughs> A nickname he has because of his like youth in the ballet dance. Yes. Like, <laughs> I love that like, the policemen just give out a bunch of like extremely homophobic like rhetoric after that. He's like, "Thank you, boys." Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, yes. Wow. 
Uh, and he, he kind of like relishes the challenge of this whole thing. And he also relish, relishes the challenge of competition or so he claims. Uh, and he explains that like, all of this is circumstantial and I don't actually agree with what you're saying. And all of this is pointless without evidence. Nick's of course certain that he has evidence, a wound from the chase earlier that day when he jumped with the brambles. Surely if Skinner has the same wound on his ankle, it will prove that he did it. Uh, but when he pulls back his trouser pants, it's... He pulls back... <laughs> Someone is that was speeding. Violent. Someone yeah. needs a nick up in there. Uh, when he pulls up the uh, pants, trouser... I have... Trouser-like, um, yeah. Trouser-like, yep. I have uh, relatives that live in Edinburgh uh, who are from the UK and... When we went to visit them, um, my brothers kept talking about like, "Oh, I didn't pack enough pairs of pants," and they got very confused by that. <laughs> yes, because pants being yes. underpants exclusively for us. Yeah. Yes, it was a fun learning experience. But gloriously, I mean, it does not reveal a wound, but it does reveal nope. that he's wearing sock suspenders, which is <laughs> equally as incriminating, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, that was the sign of true. Vi- that was when I was convinced. I'm like, mm-hmm. "Oh, this guy is." Definitely so, evil. I don't know if he's evil There's definitely a darkness within this. him. Yeah. <laughs> Something's going crazy here. Uh, but as you said, you know, he doesn't have any of the wounds. There's no evidence that he was at the scene of the crime. And in fact, he has a tape of him in his store at the time of the crime. How could he commit the crime if he wasn't there? Nick, somewhat defeated, is reviewing the footage and uh, tells Danny to go off and enjoy his birthday. When, and Skinner takes the opportunity to show up and, you know, tell Nick that even though I own the land now where my cousin's garden shop was, I plan to turn it into a memorial garden because I'm totally a good guy. Don't worry about it. Uh, and leaves Michael, a.k.a. Lurch, a.k.a. Yarp, to escort Nick off of the premises when he's done with the tape. Which is the, the glorious <laughs> jog online. <laughs> Which is my favorite way of dismissing people from then on. <laughs> Yeah, that's how I'm going to say goodbye to all of my friends and acquaintances, regardless of the context in which I first met them uh, or encountered them that day. Later on, back at the hotel, uh, the master asks Nick what happened, and he kind of like goes along with the accident story as he's talking to this old lady. Uh, Nick continues his patrols in the next couple days. This time, though, he doesn't have the same energy that he used to have. Uh, he goes more into Danny's pace of life, stopping for Cornetto's with him. Uh, but something Danny says to the shopkeep really sticks in Nick's brain. It's just one killer, actually. Which, yeah, again, is because that he set that line up earlier when they said, well, how have you, any luck catching those swans? Oh, it's just the one swan, actually. So then it comes mm-hmm. back and it's like, oh, it's just the one killer, actually. And that's the <laughs> the set-off moments. Like I said, like every piece of dialogue in the first half of this movie pays off in some way or another in the second half. It's... Beautiful, beautiful construction. So much thought had to go into that in the writing stage, and you love to see it. Um, as he sits in the car eating his Cornetto, he has a brain wave, not a brain freeze. And uh, as Danny gets over his own brain freeze, they rush back to the station. Uh, Nick jumping up to uh, the investigator, trying to explain that, like, oh my god, I've cracked the case. There's two killers. This is my new theory. But again, he's brushed off just as Sergeant uh, Popewell was. The city slickers, uh, is it's explained, they see danger around every corner, uh, and the investigator just wants him to go sleep on it, and if he still feels the same way in the morning, yeah. we can totally act then. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, no, he's, he's a chief inspector with very little... Uh, st- he's a very stress-free man. 
Yeah, he has very little sense of urgency. Um, you know, could be because he lives in a very quiet small town with an unusually low murder rate and an unusually high accident could rate. Be. Could yep. be. Uh, Nick dejectedly walks back to his hotel, but before he can open the door to his room, a robed figure uh, kind of like jumps out waiting for him and a fight ensues. He manages to pull back the hood of his attacker to reveal Michael, a.k.a. Yarp, uh, and using the monkey toy from before as a distraction, <laughs> he knocks him out with the potted houseplant that Nick so fondly took care of all these years, uh, finally saving him as... <laughs> As he has cared for it all these years, it cares for him in this moment, uh, <laughs> knocking out Yarp. Uh, My- Michael's walkie-talkie goes off, and Nick tries to pretend to be Michael and respond on it to whoever's talking um, by saying, Yarp, Yarp, and <laughs> when asked if the sergeant is still is still alive and kicking, uh saying narp <laughs> i love that because that's so because like yes that's the logical th- conclusion to jump to but they they hang on the silence for just <laughs> just long enough to make it hilarious like good it's like oh yes yes that's 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 the timing boys nick gives a frantic call to the chief telling him that shit's got real and as he turns to run out of the room he runs right into danny who tells him uh, you know, he came to check on him, uh, and Nick leaves him to watch the room as he rushes out to bust this thing wide open at the church where Michael was told to gather. There, he finds a circle of hooded villagers, now faces revealed. It's all of the named fountain folk, it's all the neighborhood watch, sitting around another circular table, chanting ominously, wearing crazy cult robes. Uh, and, but they begin their meeting as they did their original Neighborhood Watch meeting, talking about little events in the village, like the naming of the two twins mentioned earlier, <laughs> before <laughs> before jumping into uh, having take the, the real meat of the meeting, uh, taking care of Sergeant Agel, who they think has been killed. Um, Joyce is going to go back to the hotel and arrange his death to look like an accident, and then they can focus on their real goals and the only one left standing in their way the hoodies that have been appearing in the background of the scene the light vandals of the town nick decides that this is the appropriate time to make his dramatic appearance and tries to arrest all of them but they believe in the greater good the greater good uh Yes, the greater good. Uh, And that the murders were not because of the crazy land development or anything. No, no, no. It's because, you know, (laughs) that blowhard was a terrible actor. He had an annoying laugh. George had a terrible, ugly house. Messenger was just a bad journalist. Leslie was planning on moving away. It's the most, like, petty, (laughs) not inconsequential reasons you could devise for murder. So yeah, they, they, this this intense and perfectly fitting conspiracy was all just coincidence because mm-hmm. it's actually just because someone was being annoying. Yeah, this is one of my I think favorite like structural things about this movie is that when you're watching it the first time, it feels so obvious to follow the clues the movie is trying to get you to follow to put together the development plan while Nick puts it together. Uh, that you could very easily miss the almost equally overt clues that something else is going on underneath it all. That it is about these petty grievances, that the neighborhood watches up to something. You know, they're they're tracking him during his chase with the shoplifter. They're, <laughs> mm. They've got this surveillance over the whole town. They always seem to also show up and cover for each other at the scenes of the crime. Um and I, I just love that kind of like parallel structure because it does it makes the second and third viewings of this movie really yeah, hold up get, as well as they do because you, you get more detail. Yeah, you detail can easily time. pull. 
yeah, you can easily pull three unique viewings out of it at least. Yeah. Like before you, yeah, it's because, yeah, the, all the different layers to it is just hilarious. And I love that the final reveal is just like, no, nah, it's just none of this meant anything. <laughs> it's It was for very petty reasons all along. It's just a uh, best village contest taken to the ultimate extreme. <laughs> Uh, I think my favorite reason for murder has got to be the bad journalism one, because that's just funny. <laughs> just terrible spelling. Yeah. Just terrible spelling errors. I've, I would not have survived in this small town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, yeah, dyslexic wouldn't have lasted long either. But he did list her age as 55 when she's actually 53. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. If you if you were a resident of Sanford, what do you think would be your like petty reason that they the neighborhood watch would try and kill you off before the village festival oh, or no. village competition? God, I I wouldn't la- I wouldn't last five minutes because I think <laughs> I did would annoy these people. <laughs> like yeah yeah I I don't know I'd be it'd be like music too loud or listening mm. to listening to deeply inappropriate audiobooks without headphones and like that. <laughs> Yeah, I I, I feel like that's pretty similar. Um, I talk very loud, and they would probably not appreciate that. Uh, yeah. I also talk with my hands well, a lot. She does she does podcasts and she does, oh, a podcaster. We can't have one of those. <laughs> it's like the millennial. Let's start a band. Get them out of here. Uh, using up all the bandwidth. No, 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 no. Oh, she has to go. God forbid. <laughs> all of the good microphones for miles. Um, Swan apologist, yeah, all, all kinds of stuff. Um, Nick is baffled. He's shocked that there's just no reason for any of this, and he's like, "What? Are you, why would you do this? This is crazy." And as he's sort of like, "I've I've got to arrest you all. This is enough's enough." Uh, the inspector appears from the back of the crowd, and he gives a "I was once like you" speech, uh, but it explains that everything changed for him when his wife went crazy because a bunch of vagrants ruined their town's chances of winning village of the year uh, and she sort of spiraled after that um he reveals that tomorrow is the day the judges are coming to decide this year's winner for best village of the year award uh, and this has all been in preparation for their visit they want sanford to win another year in a row um, Nick once more tries to book all of them, but again, he's vastly outnumbered. And as everyone pulls out their literal pitchforks... You do have to wonder pitchforks. what was his plan here. Like, yeah, because like, he's not Even armed. before the big reveal. Yeah. <laughs> he's not armed. He's one guy. He knows they've murdered a lot of people and also tried to yeah. murder him. It just feels like there's a lot of um, lack of foresight in this particular yeah, I mean, he's the plan. Yeah, he's younger and fitter than all of them, but like they are—they have proven they are very mm-hmm. capable of murdering people. They're fun a lot, so. Bikers, yeah, fun fun, well, yeah, garden don't, enthusiasts. <laughs> don't fuck with fun runners. It's like a big thing in the UK. Those guys will fuck really? you up. So, oh. so can I swear on this podcast? Because I oh yeah, just did it. several times. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah. I, this we don't censor swear words on here. It's too much work. <laughs> fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, he's, he's out now, he tries to book them, and as he's kind of backing up from the villagers and hoods who have now all pulled out pitchforks and other farming implements to try and attack him with, uh, Yarp and Danny appear behind him. <gasps> Betrayal! Nick tries to use Danny as, like, a human shield and threatens to kill him, but he doesn't have the nerve to do that. Uh, it's his friend, and so he drops his weapon and flees, falling as he runs through the yard into these buried chambers with remains of vagrants yeah, the, and the bones. the crypt of the ch- castle, yeah. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, as we see in a few flashlight shots, corpses of much newer miscreants. Uh, R.I.P. to our red-headed friend from the beginning of the movie, the human and statue. Braces and the human, the poor human statue is <laughs> still human. steadfastly. He died doing what he loved uh. for doing that pose. 
Well, yeah, and then, I mean, it's every other side character we've met so far, the mm-hmm. shoplifter, the farmer, any, uh, you see the, the big bushy-bearded uh, deceased sergeant, like anyone yep. who's been mentioned has been killed and bungled away in these crypts. Except, of course, as we know, the goose cannot, not the goose, the swan cannot be killed. And you do not, yeah, notably, there's no immortal. swan in this crypt. Swan ex machina is coming, guys. We're getting there. It's going to all e- make sense. Yeah, even if, <laughs> even if Angel had been defeated and killed, I think eventually the town council would have crossed the swan and then known yeah. true destruction. So They would have truly have been raised to the ground. Uh <laughs> Nick manages to get out of the crypts and make it back above ground, but Danny appears before him and stabs him, uh, Nick collapsing quite dramatically at this terrible betrayal by his close friend. Uh, Danny then drives them both out of Sanford, opening up his trunk to reveal a very much not stabbed and not dead Nick. It was the ketchup trick he tried earlier in the pub. He used it to save his friend. Nick is totally okay. Which you see, actually, they, they do show that when Angel went to leave the hotel, uh, Danny mm-hmm. grabbed his notebook and said, oh, don't forget this. So you, that's presumably when he slipped the ketchup in there, planning ahead yeah. for us. Very good. Yeah, he's learning. He's, he's learned from his partner. That's It's a symbiotic relationship. It's all coming together. Um, <laughs> Danny is trying to drive Nick out of town to get him to leave Sanford to go to save himself. But Nick is like, no, we, you know, we, I can't leave this town behind. I can't leave everyone else just didn't you know to let them continue to run wild and yep. put everyone in the town in danger yeah he said your, your dad's was it uh he's appoints himself judge jury and executioner of the mm-hmm. town and uh, danny's response is my dad is not judge duty and executioner <laughs> <laughs> yeah danny's like i didn't you can't change sanford it's, it's always been like this it's gonna keep being like this you know uh nick tries to appeal to the power of friendship but it doesn't quite work just yet um danny just gives him his car and starts having him drive off for London. Having failed his appeal to the power of friendship, Nick drives pensively back towards London, passing uh, street signs in the dark, uh, highway markers, things like that, uh, and eventually stopping at a convenience store where the DVD rack containing Point Break and Bad Boys 2 does rally him what back. One of the odds. <laughs> One of, two of the old greats. Uh, and he realizes that he has something he needs to do. Um, and of course, he does tell the uh, cashier that before he buys the, some sunglasses. I love, and yes, I love, I love the stuff. Like, sir, is there anything I can help you with? It's like, no, no. I've got to do this alone. <laughs> this is something I need to do myself. Oh, hello. Oh, hello, Wispy. This <gasps> is the cat meow. Yeah. This is the cat meow. This is little Wispy. Oh, hello. Hello, buddy. <laughs> so cute. I'll feed you after this, okay, buddy? <laughs> Ziggy is starting to yell too. Even though she's definitely been fed she, today. She hears she you that. giving attention to another cat. Jealousy's <laughs> kicked in. Yes, yes, she she knows. This knows how to break my heart every time. Like he, he'll do that. Just like nothing's wrong. He'll just look at me and go, I'm like no, yeah, my feelings. <laughs> oh, it's so cute. Uh. Uh, so the next day in Sanford, everything is back to being peaceful and chill. The neighborhood watch is just preparing for the arrival of the best village judges. Um, and as they're preparing, Nick reappears on the scene, running over the car of one of the farmers whose mom does try to shoot at him. Because as you'll recall, um, all the farmers and their Every, moms yep. do have guns around here. Guns. <laughs> So yeah, uh, <laughs> I love that he, he leaps the fence and gives like double foot kicks in the face. This grandmother. <laughs> yes, he's gone full bad boys. Like if he has been trying to be very professional up till now, he is fully given in to the Danny's movie choice influence of it all for this last like third of the movie. Um, 
He goes to the precinct evidence locker, which, as you'll remember, is full of the stash of our one mysteriously well-armed farmer. Uh, and he armors up, leaving only the sea mine behind and walks out with absolutely no one in the precinct even really noticing or stopping him from leaving with basically an entire uh, yeah. army's worth of weaponry on his back. Yeah, I mean, he's briefly stopped by uh, Bill Bailey as the other desk sergeant who turns out to be mm-hmm. t- a pair of twins, both played by Bill Bailey, who yes. uh, briefly mentions that London's cool. I was like, I, I, I'll, I guess I'll tell him you, they'll call you, you'll call back, because he is <laughs> very clearly out on a mission. Yes, this is a man, man with a goal, uh, and he takes off on one of the horses he took from the, the farmer he stopped at the beginning, uh, you know, leading some of the cops to remark that they did, weren't aware they had an equestrian unit. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, because that's like a fully, like, he comes riding in on a white horse and his name is Death, so we're going, like, fully, like, uh, spaghetti western on this one. Oh, fully. This is where the, the western of it all becomes really obvious, as you mentioned, he walks in on the horse. Uh, the way that the shots are framed, it's like a tense standoff at noon he rides in and we get little close-ups of all the neighborhood watch kind of slowly watching him enter the action takes a moment to settle before it starts um before he reaches the town square he rides past some kids and he's like hey you want to you want to do something helpful you want an excuse to be like legalized vandalism go for it yeah he gives them a bunch of spray paint and has them go paint over all of the cameras the neighborhood watch has set up and as they the neighborhood watch slowly realizes what's up uh, Nick Angel is back, baby, and um, in his classic Western stand-up, even uh, stand-up, <laughs> he's not doing comedy. It <laughs> uh, is classic kind of Western standoff. Even Danny sees him ride up, all heroic and dashing. Uh, he dismounts the horse because I guess the horse isn't really that much of a buff to combat ability. Yeah, here. you probably don't <laughs> want to bring a horse into a gunfight. If, if yeah, yeah, it's kind of just a big target. Um, a tense moment follows. Nick gives a good little morning, and the fight begins. Remember that big coat that the one guy had? Yeah, there was a bunch of guns underneath of it. That's my yep, favorite costume reveal. Heat under there. <laughs> All the neighborhood watch like opens up their baskets on their bikes, reaches into the flower pots. They're just pulling out weaponry from everywhere. They are all fully armed to the teeth, um, <laughs> and uh, you know they just start mobilizing, having this huge. Blowout gunfight in the town square. There's lots of fun moments within it. Um, they kind of each get taken love, out one by one. I love that the first like counter strike for the good guys is when Angel six the children on yes. the sniper in the the shop window. <laughs> like they just run in, they just hear the scream as she's pulled back into the like into the room. It's like those yes. children just kill someone. <laughs> there's so she is the owner of the like kind of corner store, and there's a sign in the window that says like one school child inside at a time, and so all yeah. of them rushing in all at once is very thematic. It's it's very appropriate. It's a little yeah. bit of, a little funny, a little Just, nod to that sign. Um, it's very true to real life. Like British towns will like treat children as if they are just criminals waiting to happen. So. <laughs> there are a lot of like only one school kid in a time in sort of situations. Yeah, it's it's wow. Oh yeah, it's very real. Yeah, because they're convinced that they'll the kids will shoplift if there's more than one mm. not being kept an eye on. It's 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 incredibly disrespectful to the children in hindsight but you know when you're when you're a kid you just accept these things i think john mulaney did stand up about that it was just like mm-hmm. when you're a kid you just accept being treated like scum <laughs> it's like this seems this seems right this feels like just this is all i know so this is all i will yeah. accept exactly um, <laughs> <laughs> but they get they get their comeuppance here as they get to take out the sniper in the window um even uh, Danny manages to get back in on the fight, deciding that he's going to stand with his friend Nick, and he manages to uh, open the car door of the car he's sitting in and knocks out a lady on a bike who's been riding around, firing off just random shots at Nick, which was one of my favorite takedowns of the, of the Quite. fight. 
And quite impressive, because she's steering the spike with just her feet while dual-wielding pistols. So I was yeah. like, damn, Granny. <laughs> she, like, lifted up the um, blanket covering the basket of her bike, and inside was, like, a little case that had the two <laughs> pistols yeah. in it. Which... I just... I. I love the implication that this town has been armed to the teeth this entire the whole time. time, waiting for an opportunity. Yeah. yeah, all the times that Nick was being paranoid about like what is going on here, he was absolutely correct, and it's all it's all vindicated here. Yeah. He was surrounded with enough firearms mm-hmm. to start a revolution. Yeah, Danny joins Nick. He gets thrown his own gun, and they basically just continue on this shootout for the next couple of minutes. There's a lot, of, you know, fun character injuries, fun action gimmicks, yeah, pow, whatever. Lots of payoffs to. Set off the every every single mm-hmm. time he takes someone down, there's a there's a callback to a line familiar. Yeah, the lady, uh, the hotel lady, calls him a fascist. He drops a flower basket on her head and calls her a hag. Call back to their first yeah. meeting. Yeah. There's a little fencing interlude at one point, uh, and after yep, the the, uh, the sleeping husband who's been like asleep this entire movie suddenly it turns out he has a sword. Yes, <laughs> him and Nick duel a little bit, which is a nice callback because in the opening montage where we meet Nick, we learn that he's been doing fencing on the side. Um, Fencing in this movie is not terrible for the few seconds we've seen it. I only fenced for a little That's... bit in high school and college, but it seems pretty pretty good. Um, Same. Yeah. Oh, nice. What weapon did you do? I did foil because that was the only one available. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I sort of tried moving on to Saber after I uh, graduated from school, but it, honestly, mm. it scared me. They were really thwacking those things. I was like, no, I'm, 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 I'm good. <laughs> I competed in Saber for a little bit, but I ended up going back to foil. I don't. It's something about it just feels nice. very... It feels more Classic. elegant. So, yeah. yeah. I feel like a fancy lady when a fencing foil. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, after the sword fight ends, Nick standing victorious, the pastor comes back out yelling to stop. And there's a momentary ceasefire as it seems like he's calling for peace. But of course, this is... This ain't your daddy's pastor. He's he's a he's a bad priest, baby. And he starts he changes tone and whips out. He's got like gun up his wrists, like he's got those auto loading things that just pop out. It's like oh fuck off, Mm -hmm. (laughs) grasshopper. Fires at Nick, uh, hitting him squarely in the chest uh, as he goes to deliver his one liners. Um, But while he's down, (laughs) uh, Danny fires back in retaliation, and luckily Nick reveals that he was wearing a bulletproof vest, so he's actually a okay. While to the sounds he's... of extreme blaspheming from the priest as he falls. <laughs> yes. I feel like the blasphemy line was crossed a long time ago for this guy. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, while he's down, the good doctor makes an appearance, uh, shotgun trained on them. But this time, uh, Danny throws his gun down and once again, it discharges and hits the doctor in the leg, paralleling his, his entire foot off. Yeah. previous airsoft uh, yeah. rifle victory. <laughs> yeah. And that's where we learned that like Danny is terrible at one-liners, because the only thing you can think of is, yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is the pub, where we get the full uh, bad boys jump in sideways and shoot as uh, Danny and Nick enter. Roy gets taken out by a chandelier falling from the ceiling, and in her grief, Mary starts calling out, Somebody call the police! And of course, on that note, the rest of the police force of this town appears in full SWAT gear as uh, Saxon and the investigator appear and order the arrest of Nick and uh, Danny. Nick makes one last appeal to the other cops, asking if they've ever wondered why the crime rate in Sanford is so low while the accident rate is so high, and that they've been deceived by the old man, who denies it until the very end, although his progressively more frustrated and frantic behavior kind of gives him away. 
Uh, Danny even backs up Nick, who is glad that his he's glad his mom can't see that what his dad has become, and that's sort of the last straw. The whole plot comes out uh, one by one. The rest of the team slowly comes around, which sends the chief spiraling, uh, and he shoots another chandelier to create a distraction and flees the scene. Now Angel is in charge. <laughs> And ironically, even the Andes like turn out to be yeah. like, not evil. So. They're assholes, but they're not villains. It's an important distinction. <laughs> uh, they walk that line. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fine line. The Swan often zigzags across it, but the Andes are solidly on <laughs> yeah. one side. Yeah, no, no more characters back. more nuanced than the Swan. Yeah. Truly, I I think we should uh, we should abandon this podcast entirely right now at the like hour and a half mark, and we just fully go in to analysis of the Swan. I feel like that's more important than the last twenty minutes of the movie. I agree. Yeah, Angel is now in charge. He gives orders to the rest of the squad, telling him where to go, what to do, uh, and before turning to Danny and saying, "Do you want anything from the shop?" The whole team makes for the supermarket this time. Tony, the cop who has frequently asked Angel for what to do at the crime scenes, actually has a plan, and it's it's a good one. They're going to sweep the aisles one by one, take them down very strategically. It's great. Nick goes to run into the supermarket on his own at first, and despite Danny's faith in him, he gets thrown out of the window. <laughs> this is one of my favorite visual gags in movies, is when a character runs into his off-screen to a situation. Another character standing in front of the frame expresses some faith in them or something along that line and then they're immediately proven wrong by the other character getting knocked through the, the scene <laughs> this was the point where i was just like i cannot believe summerfield agreed to this because like the entire <laughs> yeah. store is getting torn down <laughs> it's amazing. yeah they're just like gunning through the aisles they're fighting the two like meat counter guys who are just throwing knives out them randomly while uh nick and yarp are facing down smashing into shelves and freezers and all sorts of things nick does try to make an appeal to michael to ask if this is what he truly wants and he just sort of shrugs and says yarp and goes with it so yeah, he seems yeah. to be complicit in all of the, the craziness like, yeah, it's like fair enough yeah, yeah. <laughs> a slippery wet floor does take out yarp uh and nick is able to go to the aid of the rest of the department as they come up with an idea for how to take down the two cutlery blokes uh, a shopping cart battering ram which is something i have always wanted to do <laughs> <laughs> just like getting a bunch of shopping carts together in a parking lot and just running full force feels like it'd be so fun. I uh, yes, I've often also wanted to take down two vicious fishmongers with <laughs> like a battering ram. With it. Yep. Just a little, we call just them a little instruction. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Well. Yeah. Continuing our cultural education on this podcast, this mm-hmm. has been um, Dominic Noble's British Culture Educational Hour. <laughs> welcome to yes, welcome to British terminology with Dominic mm-hmm. Noble. Make a little vocab list to go with this podcast. Uh, <laughs> as they celebrate their battering ram victory, Doris gets a good hit in against the secretary and makes a girl on girl action joke. Uh, she's so horny. <laughs> she's so Doris horny. is just nothing so horny all the way through this movie. She just makes like double entendre the whole time, and it's it's kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very the, funny. I, <laughs> the name of the actress alludes me, which I'm quite ashamed of. She she did like all the British comedies mm-hmm. for about ten years, and then suddenly she became like a really serious actor and went on to win like three Oscars for like super serious roles. So yes. I was like, oh okay, good, good for her. Her name but, is Olivia Coleman. Thank you. Uh, yes. I'm, Shout out. To see, I'm Olivia. showing my. <laughs> typical white male I can remember all the name of the male characters and as soon as it's a female character I'm like uh that really good actress <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> IMDB is uh, an old friend of the pod never 
<laughs> We've always got it pulled up. Danny and Nick go after Skinner, who hops into Frank's car to make his escape, and it's time for the car chase scene. Yes. <laughs> yes I love that the other the other policemen stay behind to fight the the uh, the other employees who are throwing yes. pineapples at them. I love that like there's n- no one questions the fact they're throwing pineapples and the police respond with machine guns. Like it's not like oh maybe we should like change the amount of force I'm using to the amount of attack attack we're getting. No, it's like they just return fire with shotguns and machine guns. These guys you know, lobbing they, pineapples. It's been a long time since they've needed to operate at all. They they, they just really have no idea what the appropriate response to a situation is if it's not <laughs> yes you're right yeah it's kind of like they've gone from naught to 100 they don't know this how to this is go their first crime in 20 years <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the uh, the car chase is kind of notorious because uh, it was referenced on a British TV show called Top Gun which not Top Gun uh, oh uh, Top Gear Top Gear uh, where they talk about cars a lot <laughs> Yeah, sorry, uh, Top Gun. Like, yeah, it's Memphis in a homoerotic film starring Tom You're Cruise. You're getting into uh, the danger zone there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think it's because, like, the, the two cars they're driving are extremely crap cars. They're like diesel mm. Astras. So it's like the slowest, lamest car chase in the history of cinema. <laughs> yeah, and I think that kind of fits the setting, though, in a way, because it's a very mundane place. Like, they True. could go completely crazy, and they have some fun car stunts in here, but a lot of the situation itself is just already so ridiculous that they didn't need to punch up the car chase much to make it yeah. exciting. And we were already... At this point, if you're not on board for what's happening in the movie, I have no idea why you're still watching it. <laughs> Nick and Skinner are shooting at each other through the windows, uh, but the true hero of this movie the most complex character of all is really going to come into play here because a swan in the road causes frank to swerve and take his car soaring into the model village i love that everyone involved in this scene takes the swan very seriously at this point yes. like the bad guys and the good guys are both like swan <laughs> yes after the bad guys uh, swerve and crash danny and nick take the opportunity to stop and finally capture the swan putting their oldest enemy in the backseat of the car with them, showing an incredible amount of trust in the swan in this moment that it will not go on the attack. Yeah, the, the, the true, the enemies united. Yes, it's, yep, it's, the enemy of my enemy is moment. my friend. It's 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 a beautiful moment. Um, in the model village, Skinner is trying to use another red-headed kid as a distraction, uh, but this child bites him on the hand and is now one of the most effective combatants in the movie, uh, and it turns into a slugfest between him and Nick as the kid makes his escape. Skinner is about to land his final knockout blow, uh, telling Nick to get out of his village, but Nick catches his fist in his hand, full martial arts cinema style, and says it's not your village anymore before firing back. Having seemed to have knocked out Skinner, he walks over to the kid, uh, who he's shocked to find out is named Aaron A. Anderson. <laughs> it took me years, like, this was the sh- this viewing, and I've watched this movie many times, was the first mm-hmm. time I got that joke. Because they, they referenced earlier, it's like, you want to go through the phone book, talking to all the residents, talk to Aaron A. Aerison. <laughs> so I was like, I did not understand what the joke was with this kid until literally this viewing yesterday. Like, I did not get that joke until just now when you explained that. I thought it was just, it was his name is three A's and that's funny. I, that makes so much oh. more sense. No, yeah, it was, a, it was one of the many, many callbacks. They thought, like, of course. they assumed that the Andy is being sarcastic. It turns out, no, there was actually a kid called Aaron A. Aerison. <laughs> Uh, and while this Aaron A. Anderson and his existence distracts Nick for a moment, Skinner goes to try and attack him, this time with a box cutter. But as he's running forward, he slips on a model car and he flies into the model church and gets his jaw impaled with the church spire uh, in our second most gory moment in the movie, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and this is where like the Lord of the Rings style multiple endings begin mm-hmm. in this movie, because there's like this several more climaxes after this. 
Yes, you, this is sort of like this happens. He complains about how much it hurts. We think maybe this is this is the end. Uh, Danny is sort of in the background struggling with his father. It looks like he might be supporting him after the wreck. But we see that his father is actually using him uh, as a as a shield, and he's like, "I'll I'll end this. I'm I'm gonna escape." Um, and he he makes his way. He tries to 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 end Danny. Um, gun to his head, but Danny manages to break out of the uh, hold his father has him in, but his father still hustles away from the scene of the model village, making it back into his car where he drives off and, of course, finds himself at the pointy end of the swan who is mm-hmm. in that this, car. This one pays off at this point. After mm-hmm. all this build-up, this is the, the big swan moment. This is the big swan well, swan song, if you will. If you will. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Put that down on TV tropes. Uh, someone write it down. Uh... <laughs> And he crashes into a nearby tree, actually ending the action of the movie. Helicopter whirs, news teams arrives, and the cops are wrapping up the carnage of what was probably one of the bloodiest days in this small town's history. <laughs> well, no, probably not. It's, there sounds like they've, there's been multiple bloody days. It's just That's the first true. time it's been openly bloody. The most visible bloody day in this town's history. <laughs> uh <laughs> The chief inspector from London is there, along with the other higher-ups uh, who you may have recognized from the beginning of the movie, and they all ask Nick to come back. Their figures are really bad now that he's not there solving all the crimes for them. Uh, but Nick decides to stay in Sanford. Uh, after all, they've got a lot of paperwork to do. The neighborhood watch is locked up in a montage very similar to the beginning of the movie when Nick brought in all those rowdy teens. Uh, we get, everyone takes their mug shots, etc., etc. And the gang ends up just all sitting around in the precinct doing all the paperwork, happy, chilling, you know, riffing with each other a little bit. But their moment of joy ends because they forgot about Tom, the last neighborhood watchman who has been in the precinct this entire time. He arrives down in the room with a shotgun and goes to shoot squarely at Nick, uh, but Danny jumps in front of the bullet and takes the hit for him. Nick chases Tom to the evidence locker where the C-bomb, which is the only weapon still left in there, (laughs) rolls over and traps him. And as it rolls over, one of the pins on it uh, pushes in and is activated. It turns out that the C-bomb was not uh, deactivated after all. Uh, And (laughs) it detonates destroying the entire precinct, blowing it to bits. The third big climax of the movie. Yes, yes. Uh, And as they weed through the rubble after Nick is desperately searching for uh, his his friend and he finds him and he's bloody and Danny is like barely alive. He's like, that's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Cut to. I did like, (laughs) I did like that like, Danny's the only one in danger because he was shot and blown up, whereas everyone else was simply in a building that is now rubble. They're all fine. It's only the fact that he was doubly shot and blown up that Mm -hmm. means Danny's the only one, like, in immediate danger here. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, protagonist rules. Uh, If we don't see the body, they're not actually dead, and we don't see most of the other cops, so they're fine. Explosions just make you fly through the air. That's the the action movie logic. They're there for dramatic effect. We all know that. (laughs) Um... (laughs) One year later, Nick exits his picturesque cottage, having finally moved out of Creepy Hotel, and uh, heads off to the graveyard with a bouquet of flowers. He stands in front of and blocks the uh, first name of a grave, which has this surname Butterman on it. Oh no, is it Danny's grave? No, it's not. Uh, Danny walks up, (laughs) thanks him for bringing the flowers, because they're at his mom's grave. Later on, on patrol, they get a call. Someone is messing with the recycling by the supermarket, and they take off in full Bad Boys 2 point-break mode to go deal with the problems of the small town of Sanford. 
Uh, and as they head right off into the sunset, we get a logo, cue credits, and that is the end of Hot Fuzz. Whew. A lot of movie. Huzzah! <laughs> This is one of those movies that is um, is so good and so fun to rewatch because there's so much in it, but that also makes it incredibly difficult to summarize because you don't want to leave out those callbacks, but there's just so exactly, many Exactly, yeah, because everything is a setup and payoff, setup mm-hmm. and payoff. You have to like continually think, okay, well, I'm going to have to mention this if that's going to... I'm going to yep. mention that later. So Yes, yeah, so thank you for bearing with me on that. Uh, I really... I, I quite like this movie. I, I know you do too as well. Uh, do you have any sort of kind of closing thoughts on the movie itself. Is there anything about this that you think is kind of just a good overall comment on the movie? Like I said, I just, I love that, like, there's no wasted dialogue, despite it mm-hmm. seeming like every character is yammering just, like, completely inanely all the way through. Everything comes back and pays off in the end. It's it's uh, it's just really clever like that. And again, the, we mentioned the editing before. It's just mm-hmm. so seamless throughout. It's definitely one of Edgar Wright's uh, finest. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, is one of his greatest strengths. Yeah, he he just makes all of his um, his movies are all very clear, both in you know the setup and the payoff is always very evident. You can always tell like this is what's being paid off when when you get to it. Uh, and I think that this movie is a really good example of his clarity of reference because you can always kind of tell what genre or style he's trying to reference in any given shot, even though the setting might be different. Like I think the western bit at the end is a great example of this because other than him being on a horse, there's not a lot to signal to the audience design wise that we are watching a call back to a western right now um but yep. from the way that it's cut and shot we completely understand what he's he's referencing and uh, I, I think that's strength of his movies overall but this is probably the best mo- of his movies for demonstrating that mm-hmm. oh just but yeah i just like i said i just i i love this film so much i come back mm-hmm. to it as much as possible because and yeah it's just as weirdly i'm not too fond of the rest of the cornetto trilogy but i do love space the sort of precursor to them and stuff like that and i do love a lot of edgar wright's other works but like when it comes to these particular three movies this one just stands out as like the the absolute best to me yeah this is a good entry point to the trilogy if you have friends that you're trying to get to watch all three of them have them watch hot fuzz first because that will probably pique their interest enough to go and watch the mm-hmm. other two um yeah. i kind of agree with you i think the world's end is probably the weakest of the three um I go back. If, if people like it, that's then. fine. You yeah. know, yeah. I just I found that it it wasn't the strongest of them. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, mm-hmm. this was. I mean, this was also the film that really showed off that uh, Simon Pegg could act because he'd yes. basically been playing himself up until this point. Because in Shaun of the Dead and in Space, he was basically just playing Simon Pegg, mm-hmm. but the, uh, playing Nicholas Angel for the first time, someone who's slightly off character for him. He's like, no, I can do that too. Okay, great. As uh, a real actor. Yeah, he's got he's got talent. He would go on to be in um, Mission Impossible. Uh, yeah, it was that. <laughs> I always mix up the yeah, cast was, of yeah. Mission Impossible and the James Bond flicks. We're getting there. Um, yeah, and he was Scotty now, which is oh, in, yes. like because Simon Pegg is like the hugest nerd in all of existence. Oh. So the fact that he's now been in Star Wars and Star Trek must be incredible for him. <laughs> I imagine he just got a big you checklist on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine he's got a big checklist on the wall, and he's like, "Okay, here are all the franchises and properties I'd like to be," and he's just slowly working his way alphabetically down the list. <laughs> He's get to the, like... Yeah, he's got to be the only, only <laughs> nerd of our like my generation who's actually tipping, ticking things off the list. So more power to him. <laughs> he's work. He's you know he's doing he's doing the hard work for everyone. Um, no, I, 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 there's not a lot that I can say on this movie that we haven't already said. Great editing, great construction, just a fun ride all the way through. Um, just to kind of bring it all home here at the end of the podcast, is there a situation you might recommend our audience members watch this movie in? Is it a hang out with friends and watch kind of sitch, or is it more of a night on your own? 
I mean, it would definitely fit in both. I think watching mm-hmm. it with friends is, is a lot of fun. Uh, if you're, for whatever reason, about to head out on a night on the town in Britain, watching it <laughs> first could be a lot of fun because then you'll, you, you'll walk into what is basically an exact replica of the pub on every street corner. So there a lot you go. And then, yeah, you'll get to live out a lot of the... Preferably without the murder, but you'll get to live out a lot of the say, jokes does it, in Does it time. come complete with the um, underlying conspiracy of murderous town folk, or is that kind of like you have to bring your own? I suspect... You'd have to bring your own, but you never know. I'm not going to count it out. <laughs> all right. All right. I'll keep a... Next time I'm in the UK, I'll keep that in the back of my mind. <laughs> keep eyes out for the clues. Yo, there's always the A the A plot and the immediate clues in the in the little background hints, as we oh, all God. know from... In, <laughs> in the movie of my life, I'd definitely going. be in the B plot. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the one you want to be in. You know, that's where all the fun stuff True. always happens. That's where you get They're your swans. Killed, uh, well, yes, that's yep. an unfortunate reality. Statistically... <laughs> <laughs> We're both doomed. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Dom. This has been a delight. Uh, this is the second Edgar Wright movie we've done on this podcast, and it's my favorite of the two. Sorry, Austin and Tess and Scott Pilgrim. Uh, <laughs> great That's movie. Fun words. Fun words. Lots of them coming all, all at once. Uh, thank you again for joining us. This has been delightful. If people want more from you, where can they find you? Uh, if you check me out on YouTube, just uh, go, like look for Dominic Noble. I review uh, film adaptations of books to see how well they tied into the source material, see how loyally they stuck to the plot, or how well they, they transferred over jokes, themes, character arcs, that sort of thing. So, yeah, if that's something you're in any way interested in, it's uh, yeah, Dominic Noble. I'm on. I'm actually winning the search engine algorithm on that, so nice. typing into Google also works. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. This is, a big, this is a big day for you, because you've been competing with... Yeah. Uh... Some folks for that one. <laughs> a, a domestic British terrorist is who I've been competing with, which Ooh. is deeply worrying. Yeah. I'm very glad you're winning. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, on that very exciting note, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, I'm off to go investigate the intricacies of small town America to see if we're hiding any of our own little conspiracy groups. I'm sure they're out Turn there. Out for swans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, swans, if you at all, if you live in Pennsylvania or in Boston, um, turkeys are also quite prevalent, and they will come for you. Uh, that's our PSA for the end, and uh, yeah, I think we both got some cats to attend to, so we'll catch you all next time. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on March 21st to talk about Treasure Planet, but if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for the podcast before then, feel free to email us at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform, and for more from our guest Dom, be sure to check out the links to his channel and socials in the show notes below.